Hello friends, I'm your host Chris Thrill, I'm a former Royal Marines Commando, I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt Podcast. Matt, how are you, brother? I am good. How are you? Yes, mate. I'm, uh, I'm wonderful. Thank you very much. So um, h- how are you feeling after your monumental challenge? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, mentally, I'm good. Anyway, spirit-wise, and body is quite conditioned, to be fair. So I was straight up the stairs the next day, all good. Obviously, uh, I wasn't fresh, but... Um, and that's obviously what you expect after a challenge like that. So just um, br- briefly for our guests, could you outline what you've just done so they know what we're talking about? So I set out to raise some money, money basically, for the NHS, for the PPE situation we find ourselves in with COVID. And I came up with an idea because we're obviously in lockdown, isolation, quarantine. Uh, what would be a great idea since I love, love doing mountains, is to create a mountain in the front garden. However, I've already done Everest, the highest mountain uh, replication on a Stairmaster. So I was like, well, I need to trump that. So I basically created a one-meter mountain and then climbed it to the equivalent of the highest mountain in the solar system. And how... M- so I'm just going to describe what I saw... So Matt, in his front garden, he set up what is essentially a pyramid. It's approximately like a metre, slightly over a metre high. And he's walking up one side, dressed in all his mountain gear and backpack. He's descending the other side of the steps, turning around and doing the same thing again. And each time he makes a a back and forth traverse he was marking it his progress off with a pen on a, on a sheet with lots of um markers all, already printed on it at the same time he's filming it all live so this is all going out on facebook and it's all there in his his front yard in front of his neighbors uh he's got his big pl- placard up in fact I'm going to put it, I'm going to shut up there because I'll put a bit of that video in that. I'll put a bit of the video in now. And um, yeah, it, 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 it went on for, was it three days or was it four in the end? So stupidly, I thought it was going to be around about 48 hours. Uh, somehow I calculated to 45 and I was like, yeah, it's easy to be 48. If it had taken 15 minutes more to work it out properly, it would have worked out that it'd be three and a half days. Now we stretched it to seven days. In reality, it would have been five and a half. However, we had 19 degrees sun. Uh, previously, was hanging out because of 11 degrees sun, and then there was 14 before the 19. So we stretched it to the weekend for that reason. And the second reason was because it was the weekend. We were going to get bigger audience. So seven days in total. Good man, Ma- massive congratulations. Let's let's just um, pull back here and go back to the beginning of your story, Matt. Um, what? Why did you join the Marines? Uh, it was through a city mate. So I was at Artiste um, after high school, 
spent four years in federal education learning different form uh, formats and mediums of how to illustrate stuff, whether that be technical or watercolours or acrylic. Um, and then that took me down the road of technical illustration. I then started having the party life. And then I kind of flunked my university, uh, BA honours. Uh, two years into that uh, casual work period, I had a friend that we used to physically push each other. And he was like, one day came to my place. And he was like, mate, I'm looking at doing this. Uh, do you want to join it with me? I had previously no one in the military family-wise, no friends that I really mm. stood out. And I was like, looked at the Marines, the Royal Marines Commandos, and I was like, yeah, I want a, want a bit of that uh, because I physically, mentally pushed me and my friend all the time, whether that be a sand dunes, circuit training, gym, all the likes. So uh, I applied um, and didn't know anything about them uh, apart from this demo CD, that thing we must have put on. And uh, applied for uh, every six weeks, I would then pass a, a stage to then get through to the next. And six months later, there's me joining the Royal Marines, longest train in the world from civilian street, 32 weeks. And to find out my best mate never joined at all. <laughs> there, that's kind of, you get quotes like that. My mate bet me I couldn't, I, I didn't have what it takes to join the Marines. So I went down the recruiting office to take him up on his bet. He joined up uh, after a long queue of waiting, like you do, six months or whatever. No sooner had he joined Limpston, I got a phone call. Could I join in the next troop? <laughs> so I didn't have to wait any time at all. And then wow. he, he um, got he um, he got back trooped through no fault of his own. He got um, picked on by his training team, and they back trooped him into our troop. So we passed out together. So it was a bit of a like you know. You're going to bet someone, be careful what, what you're betting them for. Yeah, definitely. How did we meet, mate? I'm, I'm, I'm going to recap. It was back to when you were doing stuff, that crazy show for television. I think I started seeing stuff about you on Facebook or maybe vice versa. Um, and for our friends at home, I meet this guy or I see this guy on Facebook who's just as crazy as I am, but a little bit more living the dream, doing all the extreme challenges, traveling the world, living out of a van a, a lot of the time, which a lot of um, my sort of happiest friends seem to do. Um, a transit van, this is not even like a camper van. And immediately I thought, ah, kindred spirit. But we didn't actually meet, did we, until one of the Sergeant Al Blackman uh, marches in London. I think it was the, the core birthday as well. Was, was it that yeah. And uh, And since we met, you've then gone on. You've then gone on to. Um, well, I went on to run the length of the UK and do my quadruple Ironman. You've gone on to do quite, quite a lot more. Um, challenges but we'll come on to that back to the marine stuff uh how was limston for you so backpedaling slightly i when i obviously come across the marines i was like whoa like i took them seriously i didn't know anything about them but i was like i can't I can't train for this and have a job at the same time so it's first time and only time really signed on my life 
Uh, however, the job said they were happy. Every time I kept passing any criteria, they were like, yeah, happy days, crack on. And then six months later, I then went into the Marines. That put me in a positive and negative angle. So starting off in a positive angle, I did find the physical side of things very easy. Like I was generally a, a troop is around 55 blokes and I was in the top two fittest blokes uh, on a bad day, top four. Um, however, what that brought with it was like a Jekyll and Hyde side of things that I didn't, didn't realise until Baptist Run. And that brought, I guess, the cockiness, like uh, the wrong sort of attitude, the wrong sort of traits in me, um, in the sense that the training team that I was with at the time, 929, would just beast me all the time, put me on the flank. I was literally on the flank, might as well default to the flank. And the flank is, um, for, for anyone that doesn't understand, is when we, the recruits, go out on the field uh, go out on exercise off base to train up your soldiering skills. Uh, every morning you typically find, and it can happen throughout the day, but typically you do a morning a ritual and if you fail it, you go to the left or right, to the flank. And then after that serial, the people found on the flank would then get physically beasted for 40 minutes to kind of instill their fuck-ups basically to, to excuse the French um, and hopefully they will then better and correct their mistakes while also getting a bit fizz in the bag a bit exercise and I would automatically always find myself on there um, and they potentially would hopefully put me there and I would learn from it and maybe I wasn't learning from it because I always found it and thrived off being beasted I was like yes happy days um, and I think it got to the point where I went to Baptist Rome, which is halfway through the Royal Marines training. It's basically the halfway stage where you go from phase one to phase two, where you phase one is all about your individual soldiering skills, how to administrate yourself, to then move into the phase two, if you pass that, to then talking about sections and troops and your recce's and your, your attacks and, and, and all that good um, leadership and, and working as a team where before your first one was just administrating yourself and individual soldiering skill. And at that Baptist one, you've got to do a series of tests and to find out if you've learned and took on board what you've been learnt, uh, taught over the last 15 weeks. And it was that point where they really could, I don't know, impact my life it really did it i remember being on the phone to my mum apparently i was crying and it was this point my parents never thought i was going to complete marine training and after this phone call of basically being back trooped from baptist run to 10 weeks down to navigation apparently even though i had um both navigational tests uh, as distinction i was like one of nine people to always have distinction and on the Baptist one itself, we do a night nav. We basically, you have a two-hour stint. You have get, get to four different checkpoints uh, in darkness. And you've got an allocated time to do that in. And I smashed that. Um, but I think they managed to put it down as navigation because they knew they could put me the furthest back uh, with a deal that 
after having two weeks of revised education for navigation lessons, I would then get fast-tracked to the troop uh, behind my original troop. So I would then end up 9.30 rather than 9.29. However, at the end of that two weeks, an officer at the time of my troop 934, he was leaving the Royal Marines uh, to then go train Aussies with weapon systems. Um, and he was like, no, that, that deal's not happening. You're staying here. And I had another person with me that we had both been given the same agreement or told. And that nearly mentally broke me. And that's obviously what happened with the phone call from my parents. And it was that point was, I suppose, the best point in the sense that not only did it convince my parents that, yes, he's going to stick it right through to the end and change the tone and the thought of it, but it was kind of that knocking, that cockiness out of me that I, I needed. I didn't realise I had as such, per se, uh, but by them putting me back to 10 weeks, which was the furthest they could put me to, uh, even though it was a lousy excuse because I cleared everything on tests, it was what was needed in me to then basically get rid of the crap and cockiness of me. And because of that, I think hopefully it became a better person. It's um, interesting you say that, Matt. Um, I mean, you. It, I really appreciate your honesty, and that's what my podcast is all about. I get a lot of young young lads predominantly watching, talking about joining the Marines. And and for me, you're only going to get the truth because if you get your legs blown off in the next, you know, occupation of whatever country the oil merchants want you to invade next, I don't want you coming to me and going, Chris, you told me it was brilliant. Cause I, so I tell people, I just tell people the truth or my, my truth, I should say. So I appreciate you being honest about about that because there is that thing isn't there in the core the training teams will really for the most part they'll try to 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 push the labs through to support them through but when they notice an aspect of someone's character that needs let's just say sanding down a bit they do kind of single them out don't they for generally tends to be back trooping. Um, I didn't know when that happened to lads, though, whether they recognised that's what was happening or whether they thought, oh, I failed map re re reading. What, yeah, what I, I think it's more of a hindsight sort of thing for myself. I think I only realised then when I left and passed out and then went to a fighting unit that I realised, all right, in training, that happened because of AK getting back through 10 weeks, which is a huge portion. I ended up then doing 42 weeks and not passing out an original troop uh, because I had seen myself off to a sense um, by getting so physically fit before joining that that then put me in a cocky frame that uh, I always was always up there. And again, it's still happening with the second troop. I was always the top two if not top four. So in, in a hypothetical sense, I was top two of 110 and top four uh, on a bad day. Now, that then instilled that, like, I just wasn't learning when they were trying to teach me stuff and they tried to beat me and I used to thrive off it because anything physical, I was like, 
yes, happy days, let me eat it up. Uh, like I remember one story, and this wasn't really uh, something that was individual. It was just more, I remember we were in Woodby Common, which is training area, and we had to cam up. We, uh, what cam up is means you've got your helmet, your webbing. Your webbing is where is, you put on your upper body and you put all your magazines and your gear in and your helmet. And you had to come up with all natural surroundings. So all the, uh, all the gorse, all the bush, all the high grass, and basically look like nature. So you blend in with the nature. Uh, and you have to put cam cream all over your face, camouflage cream. And they gave us a, a simple detail to follow. Uh, the whole trip, and it was like about 20 minutes came up, crack on. 20 minutes came, and about it worked out at the best, generous. There's 25% of the trip had done and stuck to the detail. Three quarters were still like mincing around, loafing, or kind of just not adhering to the detail. And I was in that group of three quarters, and that was it. They were like, right, we're going to just be shit. So, uh, uh, I remember we were leper calling for his, uh, this off-road track. It was covered in mud, covered in water, and we were leper calling. Leper calling is where you're like crawling on your uh, front torso, keeping your ass down. We had a meeting in the detail. We then were like, right, lads, and we then got beasted in this off-road track that was covered in mud, covered in water. Everything's brown. And for about a 20-minute period detail, we were leper calling, taking copper, leper calling. Leper calling is basically when you're on your torso, keeping your ass down, keeping your head down. And in scenarios, reality, you would use leper calling for two scenarios. Either you're trying to keep sneaky peek and not be seen, or there's rounds going over your head, or artillery or, or the likes, and you're trying to make sure you don't get hit. So that's kind of the two scenarios you would use leper calling for. Now. Apart from that, you're going to get beasted doing leopard crawling. And we were then going through all this mud. And uh, I remember at one point, the corporal went, right, take a uh, uh, jump up. And then it was like, take cover and then leopard crawl. And then I used to thrive off this sort of stuff. So I was like, bam, 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 throwing my elbows out. And it wasn't, and I was just focused, focused, looking forward. And I remember, uh, and I felt so jack and so bad for this, and I didn't intend to. Uh, I think the lads are just kind of like collectively as a group, like we're out verbally agreeing, like just stayed as a pack. And I kind of then become what I felt like seeing the lads off jack, as in the sense that there was a big pack, they all stayed together, and then there was me zoning in, stretching apart like that, and the couple was like, why is recruit blah, blah, blah? Like, and uh, I was, uh, I, I think it turned out that I was 50 plus meters, if not coming up to 100 meters ahead of the group. And I turned back in leprechaun position and just saw all the lads together and there's me just flying ahead. And what that means is because of that physical strength I had, it just saw me off in so many ways. It saw me off not learning getting beasted, not learning, seeing the lads off collectively sometimes. And the funny thing is, like, you could go in there physically strong and that could see you off because of um, the way you did with me. Or you could go in there and and be to a degree fit. Uh, and when you realise at week one and then week 32, how much the difference between the fittest blokes 
and the not fittest blokes, that cl gap closes up. And generally, yeah, you're still going to have your top fitted blokes at the end of the training. Uh, and you're going to have the lads that, that still struggle. But the gap closes so much, so much, it's ridiculous. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy that I had gone in there so mentally thinking I need to be super physically fit. I need to go in there super prepared. And because of that, that had actually also hindered me. Um, but luckily, they backtracked me. I learned from that and then went through phase two and then passed out with that troop. Wow. So you got, did I understand that you, you got back troop once or twice? Once. The, the, the navigational once. reasons, a 10-week back troop. And then I then went from, uh, obviously, week five or six or whatever it was, and then completed uh, Royal Marine training. Yeah, that. how does it make you feel? Um, being being back through. I mean, I mean, I'm. I know it probably sounds a bit of a silly question, but it is kind of the the thing you don't want to happen to you in training, isn't it? I mean, it's that either that or getting sent home because you you don't make the grade, or or obviously injury. Um, I mean. Training's hard enough as it is without having to deal with the additional mental challenge of having to join another troop. Yeah, I, for me, I didn't, I, it never really crossed my mind, but on the like, if I think about it, I wouldn't really, I don't think it would have uh, disturbed me too much in, in sense of getting injured or being back trooped, as in not passing out with the original troop. I think what was the more harder thing was the fact that now I'm not going to be with the lads of that troop. That was probably the harder thing. And like I said, uh, it probably left, uh, it probably resulted to a tearful phone call to the parents. And then after that phone call, that was it. I was headstrong, correcting my ways, and I was going to pass out. And how, that how, was realisation. How did the other lads react to you then? If you were getting put on the flank all the time, I mean, I remember when I was in training, it was always like, oh, so-and-so, you know, it's all your, f everyone would tend to blame all their worries and their woes and their foibles and their shortcomings on the guy on the flank. <laughs> it's basically by shouting at him, but that was, that was the guys offloading their own stresses and pressure on pressure onto this poor guy, just because he appeared to be the, you know, the weakest link, so to speak. Did you get any of that sort of treatment? Um, no, I think I think probably lads probably like I said I went there with the wrong mental state mindset. So lads probably like oh it's the maybe to a degree gone he's not better because I was cocky couldn't uh, get beasted uh, and also probably it's a relief for the lads as well because like I know it sounds a negative thing but when you've got someone that's like taking the limelight pressure off you, it makes you be able to hide in shades, the shadows a little bit better. But I don't mean that in a negative way. So it is what it is. Um, it was great uh, meeting lads in 99. It was great then meeting lads in uh, uh, 34. And I eventually passed out in the Royal Marines. And I learned from my mistakes and I hopefully became better from it. Mm. Yeah, good man. Good man. What, um, 
I kind of envy your fitness, really, because I, I was good at the sort of gym stuff. In fact, I got I got that PT superior certificate. But when it came, it was the speed marching. Yeah, the speed marching was oh god, talk about my nemesis! It killed me from the start. Well, it killed me from a hundred meters down that lane. The pain would set in, and I would just be. I'd, I'd, it wasn't struggling to keep up because I would never drop out, but I'd be struggling to keep step because I was so shattered. Did you find any of the any of the physical stuff difficult? Uh, so you say about your nemesis. Uh, so I have my nemesis, my nemesis, my kryptonite. I had one thing, and uh, you got gym superior. I had PTI come up to me to one side and pull me. Goes, you are this close to getting that gym superior, and the thing that lets you down is my kryptonite. And my kryptonite was press ups. I just could not do press ups, and I thought a couple of tall lads, and potentially it might be down to yeah, you have a disadvantage if you're at all. That doesn't then mean that that is the bottom line reason. Um, but yeah, my PB was like thirty eight press-ups it was shocking absolutely shocking i fly up the ropes so i fly down the roads uh lift people up do firemen carries and stuff like that you get me in the press-up position and that's where i buckle and every single time um i was just very fortunate with everything else like speed march i was always at the back so i'd just be loafing chatting around with the sergeant majors and the colors and stuff and listen to their stories and listen to their how their weekend is or how the training team that they're also supervising or something like that and just kind of get a feel and understanding what it's like through the eyes or through the ears um, of people that have passed out that are have got the green lids on the heads that are at the back of the uh, speed marchers and um, so I was very fortunate of that um, but yeah press-ups was my kryptonite. Wow and how about the actual commando tests did what's your most mem memorable sort of moments there? So there's four commando tests, and uh, also you just mentioned one uh, that contains being a speed march. It's a nine-mile speed march. So it's a body of men going from A to B to then be physically fit to fight the fight. That's the purpose of a speed march. Um, and obviously the commando tests, uh, one of them is the nine-mile speed march. Now, for me, uh, for me, it was just a duty attendant. I found the speed march very easy of, of the four. Uh, it, it kind of gained with the 30 mile is the same again. Me and Jake, uh, me, 
and another lad, Jake, um, we would keep shuffling to the forward. Then the DS would like the train team would tell us to send us to the back because they're the lads struggling at the front and we kept doing that a couple of times and then we're like right, we'll just stay at the back and we just find ourselves doing ollies off rocks and stuff like uh, in mimicking like we've got skateboards um, but we know bottom line that it was only me and Jake that found it easy like everyone else was struggling so we, there's no denying that I, that is also by the way the final uh, of the four commander says that when you get over the bridge and uh, over Dartmoor Arduous ground, carrying the same weight as you would do with all the other challenges. That's when you would, if you've passed all the previous three and you complete that, yet when you get a sample of your green lid. Um, and there's no no denying that that's a hard challenge. Um, but the final two, yeah, they're the ones that like really impacted me. So Tarzan Soul Course, again, it, I think it's 11 and a half minutes, throwing yourself through the trees, ropes and jumping through nets. And then you're at the bottom field, throwing yourself over walls, going through tunnels, going under cargo nets, going over zip walls. Just, it's an absolute blowout. It's like, you're not even doing 110, you're doing 130, 170% effort. You're getting to the end, I was throwing up everything. It was disgusting. Like, it doesn't matter how physically fit you are, everyone's latching uh, acids and uh, the sucking air. They just are hanging out. It's, it's undeniable pain, but the only grace is the fact that it's 11 and a half minutes of pain. Um, mm. while, while the other, the final four for the commander's test is the endurance course, and that's just mentally disgusting. And that, for me, that was the hardest of the four. Um, I suppose uh, I, I didn't find it hard, but I did find it hard. But like, so I think the mental side was the hard bit. So you start with three and will be common. And you have to stay as a pack going through the tunnels until you get to a sheep dip. And a sheep dip is where, where you throw the sheep in, washable. And what we would do is one would jump in one side, one jump in the other side, and you throw the third person under through the pipe, totally pick them up, and you just keep rotating to all three through. And then, and only then, you could literally do pay to be a winner, personal best, get back to camp. So you do two miles in what we come in, running through more further tunnels, smashing your knees on these rocks, smashing your back on the, if you're tall or big bloke, on the top of the, um, the, the tunnels. And uh, you're then going through crocodile, crocodile ditch, you're going, coming up knee high, if not thigh high, in swamp, in mud, and then you hit the metal road. And by the way, all those points, since you've been in the sheep that you're then way down with all this wetness, you're then getting on the metal roads, and you're then not distracted with all like the your knees getting smashed. So you're then realizing your mental states and focus on the chafing, like all your wet clothes and chafing on your thighs. Uh, it's just absolutely disgusting. Five miles going down the country roads, heading back to the training center to then go past the famous uh, it's only pain, 500 meters left to go. You then get over the bridge and enter the camp. And you then have to go down to the firing range, 25 meters for correct, if not 30, it's 25. And you have to hit the target six out of 10 times. Bear in mind your weapon's just been honking in mud, water. You will clean it, clear it, and then fire and hit that target. And I find I found out the four, Tarzan was disgusting. Full out, just disgusting, but it was short. It was an endurance out the four. 
that was just because it was so long. I think it's something like 72 minutes, correct me if I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. And it just goes on and on and on and shaving and wet and tell heavy what, knees. I, I, what I will chip in is it doesn't actually begin when you run down into Peter's pool. It, it For me, it begins at half five in the morning when it's a bitterly cold February and you're breathing out all this plume of vapour is coming out your mouth because it's so cold. You stood outside the armory, you're cold, you're tired, you're jaded, your body's lacking vitamins and minerals. You're going you're to go to Scran, which is breakfast, and you're going to eat double because you're always starving. And then you've got to get your weapon, put all your kit on, So, and it's quite a considerable weight as it is. And then you've got to walk to the beginning of the, the assault course. There's no no transport laid on you've got to walk the four miles up to the common do the two and a half mile course and then run the four or five miles back to camp so all in all it's it's quite a quite quite a slog isn't it that one yeah it's a full half a day evolution and half a day on your mental state uh not saying anxiety but just the whole putting yourself what you're going to go through what you do then go through then the you Body's taking a battering. Uh, yeah, it's, it's for me. I think for me, if I had to pick one being uh, that trumps all of them, it would be endurance course. And do you want to know the ironic thing? Go on. I would do it this afternoon if they gave me the opportunity with all the. Oh, equipment. I would. I would do. I do any of the four. I would love to do them. And I, I, my intention in the future is to try to get an opportunity to do the four again. Um, but yeah, it's just disgusting. I would, um, I'd even polish my mobility scooter just for the event. <laughs> I put my fighting order in the the little shopping basket on the front. <laughs> well, they they do a, a commando challenge once or twice a year. I think it's once a year where the civilians can partake and they raise a great amount of money for the World Money's charity. Uh, I don't know at what level it has. Uh, of the endurance course, obviously there's not going to be weapons, you know, firing target, that's for, for a start, and you're not going to have the kit. But I think potentially it's got the two miles and then the five mile track, I'm not too sure. But either way, they have a sample of that for civilians. Yeah, and apparently they, um, because they don't really care much for civilians being bloody civvies, um, quite a lot of them drown. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh. So for every sort, yeah, for every sort of hundred civvies that goes up to Limson to do the endurance course, they lose oh seven or eight. So you know, be warned. Nine point nine percent need not apply, eh? Be warned. Take your waterproofs and your welly boots. Yep. <laughs> Four or five commando, wasn't it? Yeah, that's correct. Um, I passed out there. Uh, that was my first fighting unit, and ironically, I did nine years, and I spent two and a half at, uh, to start off my career at four or five, and ended two and a half years at four or five. If you go looking back, if I'd wanted more of a sort of um, tick all the boxes career, which which you know your life never goes like that, you don't have the benefit of hindsight, and and even if you did, I I would probably wouldn't have changed anything, but. Uh, the two things I would, were well, the three things I'd love to have done. One would have been to go to the jungle with 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 the Marines, um, 
meaning like not like I've done it as a civilian, but I'd like to have done the proper jungle training. The second would have been to to join the SBS, although I, although to be honest, it would have been interchangeable for SBS or SAS for me. Um, yeah. like swimming wasn't particularly brilliant. It still isn't, even though uh, I can swim 10 miles now. It's still not. I still struggle with it. Um, and the other thing would have been to go to four five commando. I don't. Oh, really did you never go? Did you never go to four five? I didn't. And there's just something about the whole kind of um, aura that comes off just those two numbers four five. I'm thinking it's because I've read a lot about the Falklands. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not saying you know the other units did any less in the Falklands, not not at all. But there's something about the yomp, the four five, even the, the way they wear, you know, they're, they're allowed to wear their berries differently in the core, which is kind of a unique thing in itself. Um, and it also, Matt, it would have taken me a bit out of my comfort zone because I live in the southwest. So being at 4-2, it was about seven minutes from my house right or from where i grew up and it would have just been yeah would have been a bit of a sort of learning growth experience for me to to be up to be up the line and to and you know, and i'm never going to say no to spending time in scotland because i i love the place so yeah and, you would you would have been a camp orphan then wouldn't you if you went to four or five or mighty 45th is is that what it's called? I I just hear it referred to as our brove. Yeah, our brove. So obviously it's sandwiched between uh, you've got Edinburgh, uh, Dundee, and Aberdeen, and then obviously our brove, the retirement home, coastal part of Scotland on the east. And yeah, that's where four or five commander was. Wow! And how was it rocking up there? Uh, so I rocked up there when they had Herrick 5 on the go. So I was re-party automatically by default. Um, and that then, yeah, it, it was what it was. Uh, I was waiting for a company to come back. I was Whiskey Company. Uh, whiskey then rocked up. Um, by the way, when I was in training, um, my corporal, uh, when we used to get thrashed, it was like one and all in the section. And he never used to physically thrash us. He'd be like, right, just get in the water. It's like you you basically going to learn and master the skills of wet and dry. Your ministration rather than like, no point thrashing. And 20, 40 minutes later, it's back to normal. Now we're going to make you like have to now sort your kit out for the next 12 hours. Um, anyway, I remember him telling me and Tim, I won't say his surname, uh, lads, definitely consider doing SF. And... Uh, Funny thing was, when I passed out, went to four or five, and finally, company not even there. And I was rear party, so I was part of, I suppose, technically, it would have been base company, uh, but I was under whiskey. Um, I think I then just like, I wanted to wait for them to get back. And then when I got them back, and when they came back, I then missed out on Telic, aka Iraq, because I was like, well, I want to get embedded with the company. So then when they, I got embedded and felt like I was like, right now, I'm still with whiskey. Uh, they then closed down Telekin Erec. I was like, oh, gutted. And then, boy, by this point, I started, and the, I'm not the 
poster boy for the world marines in this sense is i just started becoming cb like 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 in the sense i didn't want to walk out the gates with my north face jacket my solomon boots on and look like i was military like i was proud as punch like being in the marines um I, uh, and if i'd still rewind back to the time <laughs> bless you you don't get that on <laughs> joe rogan's show <laughs> uh, if I rewind the hands time I'd do it all again it's maybe be the person that I am and all the policies it comes with um, however I just became more and more civil like and I think that's potentially the reason why I never went for SF and uh, not saying I would pass at all I'm just saying that I was advised to go apply and give it a crack uh, same again probably why I didn't do PTIs I kind of just like was GD 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 and then the next thing, 12 months is out of the way, and you're like, wow, what's happened here? Where, where did time go? Um, but yeah, 4 5 is good. 4 5 was, it was, I suppose, don't hold me to these quotes, but these is what generally would come across is that 40 would be the prof unit, like the, the, the unit that would get all the really great tours or exercises abroad. Uh, 42 would be paid pulses. I did go to 42 there briefly. But pluses would be very naval driven and you have to hierarchy. And then four or five would be kind of more seen as the relaxed unit where you have a later turn to on the Monday, you wear the cat vibes on the side and just surrounded by the Monroes and uh, it's in Scotland. Um, the Monroes being the mountain ranges, yeah? The- yeah. Uh, so any mountain that's over 3,000 feet is classed as a Monroe. But that's definitely another story. Uh, but there's a lot of them. There's a lot of them in Scotland. Um, and, yeah, I was happy with my time at 4-5. I went from whiskey, then uh, real battered to x-ray to go with Herrick 9. I then came back, went to whiskey again, before then leaving 4-5 after two and a half years. So when, when, when you were in Afghanistan, weren't you? Yeah, uh, Afghanistan, yeah. We- Helmand province. With which company? X-ray company. So I went to X-ray company just for the tour. Okay. It, yeah, it wasn't just me. There's like the whole com- the whole company, no, the whole units should say, just reorbited, got all the fighting units, the support units. They just jiggled it all around to how they wanted it for the tour. And then when we came back, everyone back went went back to where they came from. Ah, originally. right. I, I see. I see. And what kind of they call it beat up, don't they? The preparation to go on a to go on manoeuvres. What what um, what kind of beat up did you guys have to do for Afghanistan? Uh, we went. I can't really remember too much in the sense uh, that we did obviously the whole Tezex, which was like your laser quest, uh, so finding out where people. Um, so then all the top brass that can then relook uh, look at all the data and see how lads are moving across the field and around the buildings and how they're reacting. Um, we did obviously a lot of casualty drills. We did a lot of training on uh, coming across IEDs and mines. We did a lot of our vehicle training. Uh, lots of us went away to get uh, C4C licenses and then learning how to What is that license? A C plus C, so like it takes you in civilian street to be able to drive an articulate lorry. Uh, so the big massive super store uh, wagons that you see on the motorway. Um, but that's all because of some of the vehicles you have in the military, uh, because of the weight of them, and they have 
a trailer on the back, for instance, or uh, some part of it that moves uh, that's not a rigid base, uh, you would have to go away to do that. But then that's so you can drive things like the Jackals, the Mastis, um, and the Pinsgowers, and, and so on, for Herrick. Uh, th- there was a lot of training. We just were constantly on exercise, it felt like, constantly getting new kit, constantly trying new kit, constantly keep uh, learning new skills uh, from room clearances, checking out new radio kit, to learning uh, ways of, that if we found ourselves in an IED area or minefield, how to clear ourselves out of that, uh, how to use uh, Barmer kit, like if I remember rightly the name, so basically metal detector, how to find mines or IEDs. It was just nonstop. The beat up for it must be in the region of like a year and a half prior to the tour itself. Did you do much shooting on the range? Yeah, 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 yeah. You, you, you try everything. So obviously if you're support, you're in the, obviously you're on your point five, so your GPMGs. Um, and, but if you're in your, your close combat fighting troops, then obviously you've got your SEATs, your sharpshooters. We've just got them coming in. We have shotguns. we got uh, all our nine mils. We had 51 uh, mil mortars. So, yeah, it gives lots of time to get the rounds down, whether that be uh, one of the three formats, whether that be a blank to just get your drills in place, whether it be rubber uh, so you can kind of imitate getting hit, or whether it was literally shooting down the range. Uh, with live ammo and tracer. I'm t- am, I, am I getting confused here? I'm just checking my ruler there. The 51 millimeter mortar is the same as the two inch mortar, right? It's just the the metric name for it. I, I'm it, not it, a guru on weapon systems. Um, it's the pipe that you literally take it, it off it's, your it's, backpack. It's, a, it's about this back that they put on the top flap or inside the day sack. Yeah. You normally find it with. The stripe he's got it always is oppo uh, in the rear of the um, the troop, and they would just put, bring it out when needed and get the rounds down to clear. So for anyone watching, stick something in the comment section about not the chat in the comment section about uh, the two inch mortar or the fifty one millimeter for us and sort out our uh, military knowledge. Yeah, it's um, just a mobile mortar barrel that you can move around on the ground. While you obviously still had mortars uh, back in like the FOB or the PB or even the camp, but generally you're looking the FOB, so forward out base or PB would be a patrol base. So you still have your main body mortars, um, but then you would also have potentially a, a single use mortar uh, with uh, the striper or his uh, right hand. We, um, You say you put it under the flap of your pack, which is quite true, but you should secure it with a lanyard or something and the lad in yeah, our yeah, troop, yeah. the lad in our troop didn't do that and guess what happened uh, he arrived at the, in the harbour position and went ah i've just lost the two inch mortar chargeable wow. fence and you should see the training team start flapping then Whew, luckily they found they found they found found it we did uh, when we did our beat up for northern ireland we were on the range and we were doing a night shoot and a corporal who shall corporal who shall remain nameless george stevenson i think it was uh 
he he came up to he came up to the lads one at a time and said right on the final um shoot of the day everybody aim for the red light on top of the range <laughs> so on top of the they call it the butts where they stick the targets and it's in this case it was say a hundred meters away and they've got a big sandbank at the back of it to stop the rounds obviously doing any damage to to other people or property or vehicles and on top of that big big tall sandbank there's there's red lights at either end um so when you're doing a night shoot you you can see the area that you mustn't be shooting outside and on the final uh, evolution of the day so i don't know let's just say it was eight eight o'clock at night and it was dark all of us just shot for that one red light which is well, i'm not going to make any comment whether it's a stupid thing to do or not it seemed like a good idea at the time yeah and i just remember the the range warden coming back off off when they packed all the range in and we were there waiting to get on the transport and he had this lamp in his hand <laughs> and he he was talking to the range it was like the range warden and one of our training t- one of our um you know sergeants or something and i, I just heard him saying well the left light's got 42 rounds for it. The right one's 69. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, right. I think someone might be trying to call you because I've got your avatar up again or your... Um, uh, I don't even know how to knock this off. Just, I... just, I just ignore it, mate, because otherwise yeah. you... we The last time this happened, I lost the recording. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. I'm just gonna, uh, if I knock off the Wi-Fi or the um, put in airplane mode, then we can't record. So, it's yeah, two evils. And um, yes, yeah, so let's talk about Afghanistan itself. Then, where where were you guys based over there? So, Camp Bastion, and uh, well, so we went to Kandahar, it's like the capital of Helmand province, and then we flew straight down to Camp Bastion, which is absolutely littered with uh, allies and the amount of manpower down, down there is crazy. You've got the Dutch, you've got the Estonians, you've got the Americans, you've got the Afghanis, you've got the, the British, just like the Australians. There's so many blokes down there. It's ridiculous. And Kandahar's even bigger. Um, anyway, we moved out to uh, Fob Rob, uh, our company, and then they basically turned that into the name No Lay. Uh, Fob Nole, so forward out base Nole. And what that was was Millionaire's Row. So it's like some huge buildings. Uh, and we uh, moved into that and established that as the forward out base. Um, and that's where we found ourselves for the Marina six and a half months, really. Um, and I was really myself personally and Bastion for a good portion of it. And then helping out uh, from the rear, uh, rear side of things. And then I pushed myself forward up to Fob Nole to then embed myself uh, fully uh, day-to-day life with the company, uh, with X-Ray Company and all attachments. Uh, bear in mind, so a company will be 115 blokes roughly. But when you start sticking on all the attachments, like even at a small level, your Fob, your company level is 150, 200 blokes. It's huge. It's huge. Um, and this is even like talking about the main fobs like whiskey, like we're out for the sanging, and they were like, 
the company in half strong and then attachments. Um, so, yeah, it's it a lot of blokes for a long period of time, a lot of sentries, duties, a lot of uh, patrols going in and out, uh, a lot of information being gathered, lots of hearts and minds, uh, hearts and minds being established, lots of communications with the locals and elders. And, um, and then also we handed over to the army at the end. So this forward operating base that, that you were operating out of, how far away from, say, your next military civilization, so like your Camp Bastion or whatever? Well, we were literally going to get flown in. Um, Chinook's in. I mean, everything. Are, we, are we talking like 100 miles from Bastion or 30 miles or is it less than that? I'm not too sure, to be fair. I'm not going to lie. I am not too sure. I Like I said, I was at the Bastion for a long period of time of the tour. Um, uh, but how, come, how, how come you, you started off there then? Why weren't you with Whiskey Company from the start? Well, no, we were at we Tree Company because I really all batted. Uh, so I went out to Herrick, uh, which would have been Herrick 9. So this was obviously October 2008 to around May 2009. Um, and, yeah, we got real batted. And then I found myself really helping out the colour sergeant, uh, TQ, basically. Um, so I was back, um, there's two of us, and then the uh, TQ, back at Bastion. So, uh, so I, what, I, what I found I was doing is I was literally going to all the other camps, bargaining with the uh, US, all the Yanks, swapping gear around, uh, trading stuff, getting all the stuff, like all the Gucci stuff like the Brits didn't have, and, uh, and then lashing the lads up in the fob um getting all civvy stuff i just literally propping grabbing uh borrowing anything i could to get the morale and get the lads in as best as situation it could possibly be in uh whether that be helping them physically or mentally or uh, for safety terms and um and then obviously i pushed out to that fob um for at least the last third of the tour um and and did they carry on doing the same thing? And was it? Did you see a lot of action over there? Myself personally, no. Uh, but we unfortunately did lose blokes, uh, including one of my best mates, uh, which I had fortunately of an unfortunate situation had not had my R and R. I uh, basically put my R and R as one of the last windows uh, in the tour. So. Uh, no one can have to, uh, an hour and hour uh, rest and recuperation for the first month and again uh, for the last month. So you've got five and a half month window in the middle for to get 150, 150, 200 blokes through uh, for a two-week period. Now, I fortunately got a uh, green light thumbs up on choosing one of the last ones. So I just got most, brought them back out of the tour uh, before my hour and hour. Now, unfortunately, just prior to that happening, uh, for me to have my own, I one of my best mates caught it up. Um, he's point man, uh, LMG, and uh, yeah, either way, the three targets got uh, leveled by Moors, and we pulled him out. And it, they believed that he felt nothing. We brought him back. I was one of two people that would have identified him. Identified him. It turned out it didn't end up being me because I was busy doing something else. Um, and then I was one of the six coffin bearers on the Afghan side to bring him back. Now, 
I spoke to one of the welfare guys and the company and as a whole, and they said, you know what, we're going to push your R&R so, uh, right so that you can then go back with, with, with him. Uh, I'm not going to disclose his name. People can go on the page and stuff and find out, or it's all over the internet anyway. But it's the, it's the Marine that got killed on Valentine's Day 2019. You, you can... Uh, if you want to say his name, mate, you can. Can I? I'm only careful on the podcast about, you know, some people won't want to be mentioned on a podcast because yeah, 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 we haven't got their permission. If you know what I mean, but I think if you want, if, if I'm all for you know respect, if you did want to mention it, but if not, that's it's up to you. Yeah. Mate. So okay. So his name was Darren Smith, or known as Daz from Fleetwood, and uh, when he joined, he only just passed out really, and the he did some of the beat up before flying out, and uh, it seemed I vaguely remember it was something like four or five months before we then deployed that he had joined four or five from passing out. So he was quite new, he was a typical sprog. And the reason I got to know him and click with him instantly is a lot of lads dashed up to the gross, aka the accommodation, like, Matt, Matt, there's a, there's a lad from Blackpool. And I was like, Really? So I went down, rushing down to company lines, seeing if I knew this lad. And anyway, got down there, didn't didn't recognise him. I was like, where in Blackpool are you from? He went, no, I'm Fleetwood. So then, like, obviously, Blackpool and Fleetwood have, like, a big rivalry, like, humour banter-wise, just the same as the Marines in Paris. And we used we then instantly clicked by ripping out and ripping into each other. And that was it. The, the friendship was uh, born, really. And it's just getting stronger and stronger. And then, obviously, anyway, fast-forward time, obviously, he caught it up. And uh, they allowed me to carry him, not only uh, be his coffin bearer, um, but carry him actually on to, oh, I can't remember what plane it is. But basically, it's it him, two of us, uh, two rifle lads. Uh, so it's three coffins. Then you have uh, three officials uh, registered to each coffin that have to fly with him all the way back to the UK. Then you had the crew for the, uh, the plane, which I think consists of the pilot and Three of us so now we're looking seven seven bugs and then you have me just me being sat on the inside of this huge plane i can't remember the name of it and we flew back and i remember one of the crew came out and said mate this genuinely doesn't happen often look at that window so we looked out to the left and we had some fire plane uh following us uh to the side of our wing for about five to ten minutes and then he flew off wave he waved was uh and then waved off and yeah, got back. Was that, uh, sorry, that was that was that a sign of respect or something? Yeah, I, I, yeah, it, it waved off and acknowledged us, and then flew off. So he did the tilt, mm. uh, and then off he went. And it was just a, a very surreal situation, memory that I'll always remember. But so, yeah, just, just 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 to just backtrack a bit. So was Daz caught up in an IED? Uh, so Daz was point man. And no, it wasn't an IED. He basically got round in the back of his head. So oh. he's point man. He was over the brow hill, round side coming down. He then turned around to give uh, contact front, give description where it was. And unfortunately, in doing so, I think the round got into the back of his head. Mm-hmm. Uh, look, the, the, the silver lining of this, they say that he felt no pain, went out straight away. Uh, obviously, where the rounds were coming from were these three... Uh, enemy targets and we just flattened them with mortars and uh, pulled them out, extracted them as quick as we could, flew them back to Bastion. I was at Bastion already 
Uh, I was one of two people for the company there because the colour sergeant was on the R&R. Just unfortunately, he was away back in the UK. And it was me or a Lance Corporal. I was co- I was a Marine at the time. And I was in another part of Bastion, uh, probably profiting stuff for the Yanks, uh, for the Lance. And uh, anyways, Lance Corporal said I identified him. And, uh, and um, I suppose that... So you're on this aircraft, Matt. Are you saying you were the only person on it with these coffins? Yeah, so there's eight of us. So you got, well, I suppose, obviously, with the coffins, you then look at 11. But there's 11 people on this plane. Obviously, three, unfortunately, caught it up. They're in coffins. Daz is one of them. And you've got myself sat on a seat with each coffin has to have an official, uh, and that official signs over that coffin to then take them back and uh, to the UK and then hands over and signs. It's like a, it's like, it's like a civilised piece of kit, basically. Um, mm. And you have to keep it uh, monitored and passed on uh, chain. It's, it's a person that they, So you would have the coffins, me. You would then have a person for each of the coffins, so that's three blokes, and then you have the crew, which was the captain, and then two, uh, three blokes. So there's 11 of us on that plane. Mm. Yeah, I'm just um, I'm just reflecting on what I, I was, was the only one that's a bit of an oddball. I was an oddball that managed to get my R and R push right, and I should have gone like three, four, five days earlier. But instead, they were like, "Yeah, Matt, what we'll do is let you carry the coffin on and fly back and give him back to his family." Mm. Oh well, good effort. It's uh, I'm just thinking what a kind of um, uh, I can't think of the word, but what a st- what a strange scenario to be on a plane with dead bodies, basically. It's not, it doesn't happen yeah. a lot. It's not really going to happen much in your life, that sort of thing, is it? No. Uh, like I said, I, I really wish I could remember the, what the, the plane was. It's a massive, huge, grave military plane, and not, all not, there is inside. Norm, a what's for Not a C 130, Hercules. Yeah, yeah maybe. But basically, that would normally be toppers with military vehicles, cargo pallets, and instead it was empty, and it just had the three coffins in the middle. So huge volume shell organs of a plane, and these three coffins on its own. So it's very, very surreal. And then, like I said, the fighter pilot, the fight pilot to the left for 10, 15 minutes of the period, and then I think we stopped off Tur- Turkey or um, Cyprus. For a quick refuel, and then we cracked onto Britain, and then landed in where well, Brian's Norton, I think, uh, and that's where we then had other bootnecks pick him up, carry him off, and I met his family for the first time. Wow! And um, yeah, I mean that must have been quite a, a moment. I've been in, obviously, been in well that scenario myself, and it's it's. Um, yeah, I don't don't really know what to to say about. Well, it's just yeah. It is what it, it is. What it is. It's just an unfortunate situation. That's what I was trying to say. It is what it is. That's a good. Yeah, one. it's it, that that was best made. There's also a lot of lads that I knew. There's lads that uh, I'd gone up Ben Nevis with that caught it up. There's lads that get injured that are still around that uh, I know. And we all signed on the dot line at the beginning of the day. It's just very unfortunate when someone that does catch up that you know, it, it's really close to heart home sort of thing. 
Um, and yeah, with Daz, I then went to his funeral. Um, there happened that with three other lads were on the R and R as well. So they drove up to. Flip. Oh. And we situation was uh, so the coffins at the top of the church. Uh, obviously, the father is to the left of it. Uh, if you're looking at the coffin facing out to everyone. And then we were on the right, and we were literally like, uh, I could probably touch the coffin. We were like sat that close to it. Like, we were closer than like his partner, his daughter, his family. Like, they were all then down the lower levels and filling up the rest of the church. He had a daughter. Yes, yeah, so daughter. That's just, yeah. You know, yeah, that's not good. But, but he's not the only one that had a daughter. There's other yeah. blokes that had families, kids, partners, fam, uh, people that they supported when they're back home. It, it, it is what it is, unfortunately. And were so I can't imagine that the trauma that Daz's parents, you know, must have been going through at this point. How did that come across when they met you or were they trying to hold it together or, or, or was it just? Yeah, of course it is. And we're all a mess. We're all a mess. I remember like, introducing myself and I was in a mess. I couldn't speak or anything, couldn't introduce the name, shaking. They were the same. Everyone's just like, and then all um, Bryce Norton, like Bryce Norton, the town is, for me, a person would hate to live there. Like, especially around that time period, because they were just having flights coming in all the time from rifles, Marines, Gurkhas, anyone they're catching up. So they fly in, and then obviously the funeral cars, the hits would go down the street, and you would have everyone in the village town flooding the streets, clapping and giving the moments silence and flowers, and it would just be on repeat, repeat, and repeat. So Jesus, living that town would be so weird, and so I, I would not like to live there for that reason. Yeah, I wish the um, British public would be so, you know, would be so active the next time these puppet politicians send us to one of these wars. You know that that would be a real sign of respect. Um, yeah. You know. Anyway, back to you. Back to your story, Matt. Um, so, but yeah, that, that's Afghan anyway. Yeah, that's Afghan. Yeah. So let's get on to your adventuring, which you do very well. I mean, you, you, yeah. What what what's been your favourite place you travel around the world? Um, okay, so uh, super summarised as people obviously know. I went four or five, then went Afghan, came back whiskey, then went to four two, then I popped down to pool. I think. Or I got no, got detailed onto HMS Lustrious for nearly a year and a half, two years. Uh, picked up a juniors off that. So I then I was an acting corporal all as a point while on the ship. I then went to do my juniors, which would then be uh, a corporal, which is the equivalent for civilians to be as close, I would say, team leader. Uh, so you're in, uh, you're in charge of lads' well-being, but you're also you tell them what to do at the same time. There's a full package. And then obviously it went to pool and went back to four, five, and nine years later, leave the core. Uh, the reason I left the core was I just felt like I'd done my part, really. I just was, I was kind of travel hung, hungry uh, three years prior to that. 
I went um, because I was being lusty. And there was a lad that just broke up in a relationship. Uh, we, I had broken up a couple of months prior to that relationship, both same age, both same length of relationship, both in no absolute reason at all. We're both the same rank. We're both on the ship. And he just went into a bit of a mental, like, didn't know what to do with himself. I was quite fine with mine, even though she turned into a bit of Jekyll and Hyde. And uh, he was like, mate, I need to get out of the country. Uh, do you want to come to America? And I paid him off about three, four times. Lastminute.com, I decided, yeah, let's, let's, uh, I'll, I'll, if that office still available, I'll come to America. So I went to America by Amsterdam for a day. So Amsterdam, then America for like nine or, uh, nine or 11 days. And then that was it. My travel bugs switch turned on. And every leave while in the Marines, I was away somewhere. Like whether I was in Australia, that I managed for like five and a half weeks travel because I collated all my leave. It was ridiculous. It's not heard of in the Corps. Um, or traveling up the western uh, part of America when we were supposed to have three days travel and go back. I had some days to lose, so I managed to go extend three days to 16 days and travel the whole west coast. Uh, doing uh, Egypt, doing Europe, doing all sorts of places. Either way, it got then to two years. Uh, so I'm now nine years, seven years in the core, no, eight years in the core. And I was like, I need to travel. And I bought a T5, converted to a mini uh, motorhome, um, with plans to drive all the way to Singapore with it, put my chit in, the seven clicks to happiness. And nine, uh, one year later, nine years and one day, I left the Marines to go travel. Wow. Which um, leads on to your question. Yeah, sorry. I, I, I didn't mean to sound rude and cut yeah, no, the end, end of your career off. It's just... Uh, no, no, no. It's just so it's, people know, wait a minute, there's a big portion missing. So. Yeah, of course. Of course. Um, so did had you saved up money in the core to fund you when you, you left to go traveling? Because obviously, I mean, traveling for me has actually been quite cheap because I've done a lot in the Americas where it's cheaper than living... It's cheaper to travel than it is to live in the UK, right? But yeah, still, but still, you know, your money only lasts so long when you leave the core, right? I'm wondering, did you did you put an emphasis on saving up to fund this traveling, or or did you fund yourself as you went? A bit of both. I'm always sensible. I'm with the guy that bolt buys when you see it's a bargain. So to late, uh, save money in the long run. I'm the guy that buys the handset outright rather than locks himself into a 24-year contract, 24-month contract. I'm the guy that um, tactically chose to leave at nine years because you got all the benefits of uh, stay an extra year, stay two more years, and we'll get we'll give you this bonus. And at the nine-year point was the last bonus incentive to stay. And then after that would be the half pension three years like down the line. And I thought, you know what, I'll make the difference up uh, in civil street, civilian street uh, of that bonus I'll get three years later at the 12-year point, or be happy. Eve I've wrote, that's me done. And so regards to saving, I was I got I was just sensible with bonuses. I was sensible with spending my money. I knew how to make my pounds stretch. And um, where was the first place you you traveled to after leaving the core? Well, my plan was to drive to Singapore, and then uh, that would be, then be the closest landmass you could get to Australia without flying, uh, if you go through the Eurotunnel. And um, and then after that, go to Australia, because I'm born in Australia, born from Melbourne, dual citizenship, dual passport, and start a new life. Uh, however, things don't go to the way you imagine. 
I got to Switzerland with his T5. I was the fourth owner, bought from a boot neck prior to that, a good mate of mine. He's SF now. And um, basically, uh, I don't think he knew. Uh, I think the second owner either knew and tried to correct it or he tried to hide it. But either way, there's three bolt holes in your engine. Each bolt hole had two cracks in each, so that's six uh, cracks. So it broke, it didn't seal. And I got Switzerland, the fan broke. I then was like, Switzerland's well expensive. So I dragged it to Bulgaria and then I got advised by some guy, yeah, 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 I'll get you a new engine, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I used to own a Porsche garage and I was like, right, happy days. I'll leave this with you for two, three months. I'm going back to the UK to um, do well on a TV show that then also had happened a couple of months prior. So my whole plan of Singapore was just going down the pie hole without me realising. Uh, TV shows popping up, my fan was breaking. And yeah, uh, instead, I ended up completing the whole Europe and then coming back to the UK with my van still stuck in Bulgaria. <laughs> um, if, I, if you see me looking now, it's because I've got a map up there and I'm just uh, retracing your steps. So you missed out on uh, frog's legs then. That's a, a delicacy in Singapore. <laughs> uh, I've had a lot of delicacies and adventurous foods. Um, uh, too many to list, but yeah, um, yeah frog too legs are actually, um, yeah. If, if if you like meat, they're they're actually quite delicious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I I can advise not to try jellyfish. That's not a nice one. Oh, okay. They do a lot of stuff like that in Japan. At least it tastes like what you think eating a jellyfish would taste like. <laughs> I'm really lucky. I, I like all food, so I can try anything. And I just, um, I'm, uh, got a very, uh, one of my, one of the, one of the young men I'm life coaching at the minute. I do my life coaching and I set a challenge for homework. So the other day I chucked him in the sea. Um, last, our last session's challenge is he's got to go away find something he doesn't like to eat and he's got to eat it. <laughs> I'm just trying to, you know, it's, it's a, an exercise I do to show you, to show you how your li how limiting beliefs work and how we can, you know, we can actually talk ourselves into quite a lot of things rather than doing, I don't know if it's a societal thing, but we tend to talk ourselves out of doing things. You know, I can't do that. I don't want to do that. I won't do that. But um, yeah, you you uh, it's a good skill to have to be able to eat anything when you when you're traveling, isn't it? Yes, hundred percent, definitely broaden the mind and uh, don't rule things out. Just saying you're not going to like it before trying it. Yes, yes. Did you get your van back from Bulgaria? Yes, that was a story and a half as well. But I think I'm full of stories and a half. Uh, that was basically getting contacted by someone in, uh, on Facebook, Bulgarian guy saying, we've got your van and you come and get it. And this is like a year and a half after getting it, it'll leave it there. And I was like, I don't know where it is. I left it with a guy. He put it in a garage, didn't tell me the address where it was. I tried contacting him several times. He didn't speak English, had to communicate through someone else that found him in the first place. Um, and I just basically said, if I knew where it was, I would have come and got it ages ago been trying to get it i've had to wash my hands of a what would be like 15 17 grand vehicle 
Um, and I said, right, let me sort it out. And I had to work out a way to bring a vehicle that now wasn't taxed, now wasn't MIT, now wasn't insured, and didn't have a working engine back to the UK. And there was like five different solutions. And basically what I decided was the best way was to get an engine flown out from the UK, uh, freighted out, and then I fly out, meet it, get fitted by Bulgarians and bring it back uh, with, um, let's not talk about the MIT, but yes. Uh, but Ibrahim is now back uh, after, unfortunately though, finding out the, the second engine was from Oldham in Manchester turned out to be tits and then the Bulgarians got me one and forgot to screw this thing that uh, regulates the oil heat that then meant oil leaked out when I drove from Bulgaria to Hungary so then the third engine broke and then the Hungarians got me an engine and that's still in here today got four engines <laughs> but also I went through two clutches two turbos my gearbox it's been a van of stories but on the hindsight silver lining of it it's literally like a brand new vehicle now. Everything's bomb-proof, brand new inside it. Good. Is that the vehicle I saw on your video? That is correct. Yes, that is the Disney RM van. Do, do you get many people stop you because you've got the cool colours down the side? Uh, we, uh, so I got that just prior to the Mont Blanc, which I'm sure we'll talk about, but it's the fifth challenge. And as I was leaving the UK, it's still on UK uh, motors, motorways. Uh, some articulate lorry truck drove past BP and saw and go, Royal. So, yeah, uh, do get recognized, and it's it's really, really nice to mm. see people that uh, recognize the colors and, and, and the likes. Brilliant, brilliant. So, let's can we talk about the TV program? What happened there? Because you put a lot of effort into that, you were quite you were a sort of candidate for. For, for, for winning it and then it sort of seemed to fizzle out do you want to explain a bit about what how what that tv program was going to be yeah so i'll tell you the concept of the tv program and then i'll skim a summary over it because i'm two cents legally probably tied in a, a non-disclosure contract um but basically the concept of the program was uh this multimillionaire decided he would lo love to make an idea throw some money at it, and it was basically to find who's the most respected, who's the most worthy, who's the most deserving person um, of what would start from over 5,000 applicants and over five stages. We'll whittle down to the top 10. These 10 people, and one, one being me, would go on an island and they would do a series of mental and physical challenges to then uh, be whittled down to one remaining. And that one person would then win a black card three months that would be have a an unlisted amount of money on it and you would just have a plan of things you would like to do and as long as they get green lighted you then do whatever you want uh with that card you can you could not buy materialistic things but it's all about mem memories so it's all about activities like traveling here doing bungee jumps doing that flying by this going to this festival doing whatever you want for three months and then you would be the ambassador for the show which would then lead to, I think it was 40 or 50 grand contract uh, contract job for 12 months. And I can't suppose how it went to per se, but let's just say I did really well on it. But uh, unfortunately, I think it just got shelled. Uh, I think it was more one of them. He wasn't, he didn't make his millions uh, in TV. He made millions from property. He had a lot of money for an idea. And instead of selling the idea, 
And then these people, broadcasters, would go, well, I like that idea, but we want to change this, this, this. He instead, uh, or you uh, do a pilot and then see if anyone buys the pilot. That's kind of the idea of the pilot. That's basically the way it should normally go. He was like, money sense or orientated. He went, no, what I'll do is save the money wasted on these and just do the whole show, film it, and then sell it as an aftermarket thing. But that's where he opened the can of worms because everyone was like, oh, you've got none of this, or we want to change that, or this, 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 and it was too late by that point. And, what, was the, uh, what was the name of the show again? It was like Your Dream Life or something, wasn't it? The Perfect World Project. Uh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, so that's where you could have come across me. Yes. But you're um, very good, mate, at bouncing back. What I'm what I'm going to call in my next book because I'm writing a book. I'm just I'm writing a book and I'm putting a few of my sort of I don't know what you call them, but psychological rules for life or the, just the way that I think and how what what gets me gets me forward and gets me achieving. And one of them is called "We Only Go Forwards," and in very simple terms, it it just means there's absolutely nothing to be gained by living. You know, by wallowing in misery in the past, there's just nothing. You gotta pick yourself up, look forward, move on, job done. That is it. And you do that really well, Matt. Or it, you cer- it certainly seems you do. Yeah, um, I think the negative side of that perfect world project was just two and a half or three and a half. Can't even call anymore. Amount of time and effort that I put in that other applicants had put in and unfortunately it didn't blossom the other end the silver lining way of looking at it is well lisa didn't lose millions in sinking into it which obviously the person did um but that also i took a lot away from that i learned the skills of social media how to reach people build page and i suppose when we then move on to the challenges um I knew how to hopefully build a platform and reach and get as many people as I can. I took a lot away from the Perfect Project that I then had skills to bring on board. Yes, yes, good, yeah, and that's 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 another thing, isn't it? We we take the lessons of the past and we we apply them to the future. We we take the learning, you know, the learning from the past and apply it to the future and leave the kind of, you know, leave the negativity behind. Um, is it just gone a bit too dark in here? My no, it's, you're fine. No, you're absolutely fine. You're absolutely right, okay. fine. And um, the next thing I know, so I, we, this kind of TV program went quiet, and as such, your, your, your sort of social media presence disappeared very briefly, and then it came back with, with a bang, let's say, with these... <laughs> Um, series of of uh, extremely dedicated challenges. I'll say dedicated as opposed to crazy because crazy doesn't do you justice. Very well thought out, um, well planned. Fair to say, physical challenge, physical and mentally demanding cha- challenges. When did the idea for that come around? It's quite funny, it's where we then tie back into the van as well, I suppose. So um, we are now looking at me approaching the, the ripe age of 35, if I remember rightly. Um, 
would it be 35, 35? Yeah, 35. Um, so on the 1st of August, my birthday is. Um, so we must be looking at somewhere like May or June. I come up with this idea that uh, typically you would do one of three things uh, to celebrate a birthday. You would either have a nice meal with your friends or go out on the lash, uh, get a few drinks. Or if you make it lavish, you go on holiday to celebrate your birthday. Uh, instead, I thought, no, I want to see, uh, since 35 is a nice age, I want to go and beast myself in the gym. I want to see how physically fit I am as a 35-year-old. Uh, and it started with a small idea and it just snowballed. So basically it was, uh, all right, I'm going to go on the Stairmaster, revolving st- uh, steps basically, and I want to see if I can do 10,000 steps in two hours. And I was like, right, happy days. And I remember I was I couldn't sleep really for three days properly. And I was like, right, I just need to exhaust myself. And I go to the gym. And next thing I know, I smashed the two hours on a training day. I was like, oh, my God. So I was like, right, I'm going to have to make that an hour and a half now. See if I can do it an hour and a half now. I was like, well, wait a minute. Maybe what happens if I do this and I've still got gas in the tank? I said, right, what I'll do is I'll come to the gym. I'll do this, like, uh, competition, blah, 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 blah. Work out how much body fat hydration and all that. And do the generic test. Go away, get some food. Come back, do the stairs. Go away, get some refuel. And then come back to the gym, hypothetically for the second challenge, but realistically it's third now. And what I would do is I would move 10,000 kilos over 10 exercises. And then when I wrote it down on the, uh, in my notes, I was like, wait a minute, that's a normal workout. So I was like, all right, all right. So I'm going to move, uh, I'm going to move 10,000 per exercise of the 10 exercises. So now I'm moving 100,000 uh, ton, 100,000 kilo. I was like, right, happy days. But then what if I'm still got energy in me? I was like, right, what I'll do is I'll go home, get refueled for one final time, and then in the, in the evening, I'll come back and I'll attempt to do 100 sprints at top speed, 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off, hit high-intensity interval training, and then that's be done. Because it's the same like when I go for a run. If I go for a four-mile run, uh, at the very end, last 100 metres, I don't want to get to the finish line and go, oh, I could have done a bit faster, blah, blah, blah. So what I do is the last 100 metres, I put all in, gas myself, no fuel in the tank and exhausted, knowing that when I get to the finish line after like 100 metres worth of sprint at the, at the tail end of that four mile or whatever it is, I've put all left in. Mm-hmm. So it's the same sort of theory with the sprints. If I can do 100, if I can get up to 100, if it's only 43 or 27, whatever. Uh, anyway, this Bulgarian gets in touch with me and he's like, when are you getting your van? And I'm like, who are you? You're clearly from Bulgaria. Oh, my God. I wish I knew like where my van was previously for the last like year and a half. Right, let me sort this out. So I then worked out how I was going to get it, bought an engine, flew over there, thought it was going to be 10 days. And I thought, right, three days in Bulgaria, get fitted, then comes uh, swamp by in Nuremberg in Germany. It's like one of the last places in Germany. I've not done, done like over 20 places in Germany. And then come by... Uh, back to the UK after 10 days. Proper relaxed, relaxed trip. Uh, and obviously that went P-tongue, didn't it? So the engine turned out to be tits, as I've already said. Bulgarians have forgot to screw a cap on on the third engine. Uh, Hungary, I, I was stuck there for three weeks while I tried to find me an engine. It was just an absolute nightmare. And I was stuck in four countries for two months uh, with no earnings and when i got back i was mentally just a bit heartbroken i was like wait a minute i've just missed my birthday was when i was supposed to beast myself to see how physically fit i was and i was just like 
bit deflated. I was like, what am I going to do? And then, like, as the end, the end of the year's turning up, like, a few months down the line, I'm like, right, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to set a series of challenges. I'm going to set a series of challenges. Haven't quite thought how many it's going to be, but eventually it turned out that I was going to attempt seven and I'm going to raise money for some charities and obviously easily cho- chose Royal Marines Charity, uh, half split pot, and the other split pot was the Box Recovery, uh, which incorporates the whole of the MRD rather than just the Royal Marines. Uh, but both military themed, and I'm going to do this challenge, and each one is going to trump the, the previous, and the purpose of these challenges is three things. One is to physically push myself to become a better me, to challenge myself and and, and be a better me. And then off the back of that, hopefully that will inspire others to set their own challenges, not to the same level, but just to maybe go to gym three times rather than twice or use the stairs instead of the escalator or, or the likes. And third and final is increase awareness for these causes that I'm raising money for. And if we can save some, uh, raise money at the same time, then Brucey bonus. And then 2019 turns up and that's the challenges. That's where it came from, off the back of my 35th birthday going wrong. My gosh. <laughs> Do you want to just uh, outline what the challenges were for our friends at home? Um, uh, yeah, I can, I've, I've had to say these many times, so I know I'd say them really quickly now. So a uh, shortened down version would be, uh, Johnny is 15 came, that was the intro challenge and still a bit of a cheeky challenge. Our mom has decided 100 sprints, aka took it off the kind of 35th birthday one, uh, 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off, uh, top speed, treadmills, 20 kilometers, and it was disgusting. Uh, I didn't realize how hard it was going to be. I did 83 and I just wanted it to end. I had some former bootnecks come down, support, had serving bootnecks uh, help, and that was the intro. The 14th of February was the one that was always going to be a set date, and that was to mark the 10th anniversary of Dad Smith that we spoke to about earlier in this show. Um, and that was to do the height of Everest uh, on a revolving staircase, funny old thing. Um, and, and I did that in nine hours over a 12-hour uh, period. And, that, and the reason that was was I eventually had to start doing a 10 minutes uh, worth of work, two minutes rest, because... Four to five minutes into that 10 minutes, I would get bolts of uh, cramp flying up my uh, quads. I was beast through that period, but then at 10, I would just have to, have to stop, uh, socialise, advertise on the live, and then go crack it and, and just keep repeating until finished. So there, that was that to mark the 10th anniversary at Blackpool Fun Club. The third one was attempting 100 mi- uh, miles from Liverpool to Manchester via Witness and Warrington and back again. Uh, managed to blank four former Marines, well, three former Marines and one of the fathers of the time, um, which basically means a recruit that was been in training for a long period. I think he was in training for nearly four years. Anyway, managed to blank them, uh, and we went all we all were training up in our own different places in the UK, took time off work, had everything planned, advertised, promoted, promoted, promoted. When it came about, the weather was disgusting. Like we're not talking disgusting. We were in we were the whole of the country was having to deal with a hurricane Katrina. And the bridge was closed down. Um there was barely any traffic. Nobody was outside apart from like dog walkers and the odd mental runners. 
And instead, we went running through the heart because it was day two of what turned out to be three days of Hurricane Katrina. So we ran straight through the eye, right, right through the center of Hurricane Katrina for 18 hours, uh, which led to one man at 50 miles pulling his uh, groin. But for him, he, it was a warm-up and personal best for a Bolton Ironman. Uh, another one, uh, pop smoke around 73. He had hypothermia, it turned out. And pop smoke uh, being, being a military expression for pull the plug. Yeah, yeah. He, he, he had sensibly had to uh, call it a day. Um, he pulled his groin again, I think, uh, and he had hypothermia, it turned out. And then uh, one of the former Marines, he had chafing in the gooch. And uh, me and eventually we got to 83, I think. I think we had like 70 miles to go. And we had horizontal rain coming in. And it was like we had my partner stopping and meeting us every six miles. And we're, we're saying to the lads, when we get to the next trip, we're going to have to get umbrellas and literally have them horizontal like that, like spears, uh, because all our waterproof was soaked through that we needed like some, some other form of like barrier. And we got to that checkpoint, and I was like, actually, lads, we're going to have to stop here because it's ridiculous. We're not even at the mouth of Merseyside yet, where it's going to get even more elements, and we're, we're soaked. We've been out this 18 hours. Anyway, when we popped and when we stopped, we went back to Armour It then turned out that I had hypothermia. Uh, so two out of three of us had hypothermia. It was just, it was a nightmare. Um, but a great effort. We then went to the fourth one, which is probably what most people then caught the traction uh, of Disney RM, uh, where it saw me for 13 days covering 700 kilometers, 434 miles, with a 26 and a half uh, kilo, two and a half meter unbalanced rowing machine on my back, concept two. Well, um, explain with... the unba- unbalanced thing, Matt, because you put that in all of your posts and I, 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 I was taking it that you meant, you know, it doesn't balance properly on your shoulder, but. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't. It's heavy at the front and there's a tail at the back and the tail's mega light and the front's heavy. And for cause of that reason, it's just awkward. It's really, really awkward. Um, and like I said, my, my intention was to start at Snowdon, do the three national peaks, Snowdon, Scarfell and Ben Nevis, get to the summit by Grip Rock on the very first one, which is one of the most uh, challenging technical climbs in the UK. Uh, and I'm taking a road machine over the top of it. Uh, and then when I get to the summit, rode the, the height of that mountain in distance. And then instead of coming down and jumping in the car, I was walking between mountain to mountain. So I was literally walking up the country from Wales, England, Scotland. And then I thought it'd be very fitting being a Marine and at the Commander Memorial since it was nearby from Ben Nevis. Uh, 13 days later, I encountered everything. Like I was in Scotland getting... Uh, heat stroke from the sun which is on un, like unheard of in scotland uh i was getting pelted by hail uh soaked through by uh, rain i was in a lightning storm with what would be a two and a half meter uh, lightning conductor on the back uh and i was getting pinned down on the, uh, like a boulder minefield on scarfell by gale force winds it was just phenomenal i was losing skin on my shoulders losing the skin on my feet um but ITV, BBC, and everyone picked up, and we raised a great amount of money, so worth it. Um, we then moved on to Mont Blanc. How much, um, how much did you raise for that one? So we would be around about, with gift aid, I reckon we're looking around about 13 grand 
but that was obviously starting with the first challenge and then it's just starting to pick up traction. Yeah, okay. like I remember the first one we got just over a grand, the next one we got just over three. Uh, I can't remember what I got uh, Everest, but by the time we got to the 100 mile, we raised three grand on that and then the UK we raised a lot. Um, and then Mont Blanc came around. The idea was to do the same with the rower, but take up Western Europe's highest mountain uh, over a series of three days, two nights. Um, unfortunately, I got it, I think it was oh. 392 metres from the top. Where, where is Mont Blanc, mate? Uh, it's the Chemini. So it's in France, but it also uh, crosses into Italy. Um, but the main route will be coming from France. Obviously, I don't know how many routes there are up there, but the main one is from France. So most people will recognise Mont Blanc, uh, Western Europe's highest mountain, because obviously it's not Europe's highest, highest because of Georgia and Russia being on the European continental plate. Uh, and Russia's the first and Georgia's second. So technically in Europe, Mont Blanc's the third, but Western, uh, Western Europe is the highest. So this challenge is seeing you Get yourself into Europe, France, put yep. your rowing machine on your back, put put your climbing gear on, go up, let's just call it, you know, one of the highest mountains in Europe, uh, to the top where you're going to get on your rowing machine, row the height of the mountain in, in, in metres or yards, I guess it doesn't matter, and, and then you're going to hopefully descend safely. Yeah, and uh, there was a lot of preparation. I had a former Marine with me and my missus with me. Uh, she obviously wasn't coming to the summit, but we obviously travelled down in my van. Um, we had met the French police and the mountain police. Um, we had told them the plan. We, showed, we were willing to show them all our gear, showing them that we had uh, explained to them our experience, explained to them that by this point I had done 20 countryside mountains. And ten with the bone machine on my back, uh, so Mont Blanc would be my twenty-first. Um, explained like all the safety and risk assessments that we put into place, and they were happy. And they gave us a thumbs up and let us go on the way. Uh, we then crossed, uh, came across the White Brigade again, another form of police. They rang through to the Mountain Police. They said, "Yeah, he's had a meeting with us." So then they let me proceed. So now this is two officials that let me go. I then get to the first talk. They obviously question what's going on, blah, blah, blah. They didn't allow me to proceed. I then get to the second hole, and the main one looks like the, the Death, Death Star. Um, they then let me proceed, and unfortunately, we got a weather window in that second one that was supposed to happen at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. By 8 o'clock in the morning, there was a complete whiteout. I'd gone past the safety hole, um, so I was already climbing, and I was 392 metres from the summit out. So very close, and uh, the visibility had reduced down to 50 metres, if not less, and you couldn't see anything. And I just said to Craig, Craig, like, where the hell's this come from? Like, we were speaking to guys, like, what is this? Like, we're being advised it's supposed to happen at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, so why is it happening now? Mm. If not later, it might. It was supposed to be like six hours later, so it would have been later. And I just said, mate, I'm going to have to make the executive decision because – if power, if safety, like always important, mind Craig's safety. But for me, even more paramount was everyone else around us because, like, wasn't their reason, their choice for to have some bloke with a row machine on a mountain around them. So 
their safety was always paramount, even beyond mine. Um, and I said, mate, we're just going to have to come back down, put it into that shelter. We'll then try and tackle it on our own when we're taking that risk element or reduce that risk element, uh, complete it, and then come back down, explain what's happened at the second hole and keep explaining. And then when safety uh, prevails, I then go back and collect it, which is what I said on my Facebook Live. That next morning, I explained before it then all went haywire. Um, but bearing in mind, safety was always my key point, like to the sense that whenever we come across people, we would do one of three things. We have a come to a complete stop and run machine on my back and then uh, see what me or them want to do or put it down or choose a different route. Or in fact, there's a fourth route, fourth one, they go, oh, it's all right. And then they'll let me go beyond or they'll choose a different route. So like I always put their safety at first. And the reason that the challenge came to a stop because of safety. However, it didn't uh, get a, a, like dressed like that globally in the sense that, Chris? Okay, so let's let's just re- recap because it's for people who are not mountaineers might, might be losing the thread here. You've gone up the mountain. You've got to your first huts. They have huts on these mountains and everyone's kind of welcome to use these huts. There are obviously a, not just a safety precaution, but these huts are built into mountaineers' plans. You, you've passed the second hut. You're still going all right. Then the weather has, has really closed in. You've got um, bad visibility. And Did you have snow? Yeah, yeah. So you're completely in snow already. So like when you've left your first hut, you're in snow. Yeah, okay. And you've got to a point where it suddenly has become too dangerous, really, to continue carrying the rowing machine. So you've put it in one of the hut, gone back down, put it in a hut, continue to try to make your summit bid. Did you make the summit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry, I'll correct myself. Sorry, the snow is actually on the second hut uh, where you have to put crampons. But between the first hut and the second hut is where they call Death Valley or something. And uh, there's another term, and it's really like a technical, um, very dangerous. And if it wasn't from a skill set, I wouldn't even try doing what I was doing. I was carrying 18 kilo, 19 kilo bag full of safety kit, all my crampons, all my helmet, everything in with it, and then a row machine on top of me. So that would look at 40 plus kilos. Uh, and I assaulted this fine, not a drama. Got to the top, got to where the second hop's going to be, put my crampons, got to the second hop. Uh, moved up to the safety up the next day. Uh, safety up, by the way, also to kind of visualise, is huge. It's the biggest hut I've ever been in my life. It's like you have to come from the base, you come and penetrate, you go up some stairs, penetrate through a hatch, and then you drop out into what looks like a huge lounge. There's an elevated area at the back of this lounge, which is where the sleeping area is, and around the corner, like, and along the whole right side, it's like some table units. And I placed my rower underneath the table unit, completely away from the sleeping area. This sleeping area, also to help people picture how big this place is, in 2018, the mayor of Saint uh, they said that there was what seemed like an organised event, 20 individuals staying in this hut as like they were using it as a hotel. Because um, bearing in mind, you, you're not allowed to now do no blunts since 2019 without accommodation books. And you can only... Let's just explain why why we're saying all this. It, it's because Matt Lord Disney got a load of shit on his return 
um, to the UK for making the decision to leave the rowing machine in in this hut. Am I correct? Yeah, hundred percent. And, and uh, then the, the, the mayor got the mayor of this uh, Chamonix got involved and was was calling us um, as as a country. You know these bloody British people that come here and they think they're this and they and as an outsider looking in, it it was all just an absolute load of nonsense. I mean. My God, talk about the spirit of adventure is just being extinguished in people with this ridiculous jobs worth safety. You know, we're Marines. We do safety quite well. But there are some times um, like when I ran from John and Groats to Land's End, there was sometimes you have to make a decision and you've got to push the push to the edge of the envelope slightly that that if you don't. Then what you're doing isn't a bloody challenge, is it? It's what it's, it's what everybody can do, and that's that's not why we do these things. So you've got a massive amount of just unfairness. Um, can we just establish why didn't you just pick up the machine on your way back back down, or were you just too exhausted by this? this point no the safety uh, so the white out the weather everything everything oh, okay. was totally against us so people's lives were paramount yeah couldn't you have stayed in that hut though and waited for a weather window no, and... no. Uh, so craig had his flight the next day i had to make sure that my team member was going to get down safely so i couldn't just let him go on his own i was happy to go back up on my own because of my experience on mountains and um yeah I just did not expect what would happen. Like they knew exactly that I was raising money for people that were on the brink of suicide, uh, severe depression. They knew the cause. They knew it wasn't someone that had no experience, that didn't have the background that it had, uh, and the reason why it was left there. But instead, they chose to ignore that, and instead just turned into a political agenda that then got picked up globally. And I was in every single newspaper. I had friends in Australia saying, "Mate, you're in the news over here." Had Germany ringing me. Had I was on the TF1 uh, interviewed in Montpellier, which is the most co- uh, news-covered channel in France, come out to interview me. I had B- uh, BBC, Telegraph, and Times. But when they got pictures of the rower and how tidily uh, uh, it was put in the corner and how little space it was taking, everything like that, they then massively supported me, even though their head towels were obviously grabbing. When you read into the actual articles, they were supporting me. And it just seemed like we went down the whole French against the English and English against the French. But like I was stuck in, not stuck in the middle because obviously it's me that made the situation happen. But like my mental space, it went on for four and a half months. I had two cases against me, one for the safety of others, which was like, well, this is why I stopped the challenge in the first place for safety. So that's ludicrous. Another one was leaving uh, objects in unauthorized uh, place. Uh, which again I've explained this massive twenty-person uh, safety place, and I instantly went to speak to the manager of the second hall about what had happened, and I just got DMs, messages, reviews, everything was just hate, hate, hate on all platforms: Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and I just like I'm very fortunate. I'm very mentally robust. Like I know. I know lads that are considered to be mentally robust, but unfortunately we know that 
things like PDSD has turned out that lads had just been overwhelmed with it and it's unfortunately meant that they've taken their lives. And I just know that there are some people that if they've been in that situation, military or not military, like it would have gone a lot worse. Um, so I am suppose I'm a little bit fortunate at being mentally rushed and being able to cope with that. But Jesus, I got asked what's been the hardest challenge I've done today. And my, challenge, my answer to that was the four and a half months post Mont Blanc. Mm. Not any of the challenges, not the ripping my skin off, not the sleep deprivation, not any of the physical sides of any of my challenges, or going through the elements of the weather, getting sun, sunstroke or, uh, or lightning and, and wind and or anything like that. It's been the aftermath of people that have tarnished me with littering a mountain when I like littering it with what is really a, nearly a, a 1,100 euros worth of piece of equipment. It's not a piece of rubbish that I'm not going to intend to come back. I'd already stated that on my Facebook Live that I was going up there for safety, uh, as soon as it became safe. Uh, I, my love of mountains, I don't want to tarnish and I never intend to tarnish. The amount of litter I've seen going up on Blanc alone and then they're deeming me saying, oh, I'm just disrespectful of the mountain. I'm just leaving my rubbish there. How, go get your rubbish and all this lot. And I was just like, I just was bombarded. I was bombarded along with legal uh, cases against me as well. Yeah, I mean, it, they, the, the, the pressure on you was, in, was not just massive, but it was also incredibly unfair. Um, having a go at a veteran is just a stupid idea when we, we've, we're currently experiencing an epidemic of suicide. It's just cretinous. You don't, you don't have a go at anyone else's life because you don't know what they're going through, isn't it? You know, you don't know what an individual's going through, and you think you've got a right to attack them on social media over something that essentially is nothing to do with you anyway. And if you knew the truth of the matter, <laughs> you'd know. You know, it. it this is. Um, this is an issue. This is why I like these chats, Matt. This is why I I try to highlight the bigoted nature of of us as human beings, and we're all guilty, uh, you know, at some stages of our life, or even you know, um, in our cur current in the current way we are. But you you know, you can't be on Facebook flag waving and saying what heroes our veterans are. And then in your next Facebook post or Instagram where slagging off an Afghanistan war veteran over leaving a, you know, temporarily leaving a trinket up halfway up a mountain. You know, it's it's hypocritical. It's not supporting veterans. It's it's not considering that people who come back from war, um, people who have been in the armed force in general seem to carry a lot of trauma. Um, so yeah, maybe we can all all learn from this, Matt. Yeah, that, that, that's the funniest thing, really. Is that it's it's a veteran that's going there to do something to raise money for other veterans that suffer mental health, that often the brink of suicide, that have taken the life, and then that is getting attacked mentally. And it's like, yeah, you get that was the hardest four and a half months out of this backlash was was. Did veterans make up a a part of that? 
Not that I know of. I, I, I think in every company, business or something, you're always going to get something. You're not going to please everyone and everyone. But generally, there's a lot of British supporting me. I even have some French people supporting me. People help me uh, translate statements and stuff. I sent two different statements. I answered all the questions, everything. And my role was getting used as ransom, so I'll come back in person, even though the person that told me, the commandant at the time, was told me to stay away until the dust settles. Then he was telling me that, oh, we need you to come back. I'm like, I'll give you two statements, one in French, that was a lot of effort. Then I've answered all your questions. Then I've tried to see you two, three different times in different places around France, but you've replied too late. And now I'm back in the UK, and you're now holding my role ransom until I come back. Yeah. Uh... Yeah, I saw one of your posts on the Facebook page. It's a, I think it's an ultra-running page that we're both members of, and someone had written below it, oh, this is highly reckless, putting li- the lives of the safety crews in it. And I'm just like... But here's a question, I, Chris. I don't reply Chris. to all that stuff on social media because it's just it's laughable, but I just thought, I thought, where is the passion in your life, mate? Where's the passion? But rewind, like, how many years ago when the first bloke got on skis or some form of skis, how reckless would that have then seemed? And now everyone does it as a sport. How reckless would it have been the hang glider, the paraglider jumped off a cliff and then glided down? And now it's like they're getting sponsored by huge companies like Bethel and, and the likes. And that would have seemed like, oh, my God, because he's the first person that's ever done it. Like, that's obscene mentally, like... Um, reckless and stuff. I was, yeah, I was attempting to be the first person to go up a ro- uh, mountain with a rowing machine, but it's not like I didn't have the experience behind me and I, I hadn't chosen the right, right reason for not being able to fulfill. How hard that was for me to have to choose safety over completing challenges in the first place was hard, but to then get everything that came off the back of it is even worse. But I just think if no one pushed beyond attempting to do something that never been done before where will we right now in this day and age mm. yeah it's um you certainly don't have to explain yourself to me me matt although it's very kind you've cleared this up for, for you know or you've elucidated on it for people listening it was just all it was all a bit silly especially when the bit came out i i'm paraphrasing here but it was like these Brits can't think they can come over here and dump their rowing machines on our mountain. And, and you're like reading it thinking, yeah, like, and how often does that happen exactly, Mr. Mayor? Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah that, that, that mayor came in onto my Facebook and on top of uh, him being in a diplomatic position at professional level was DMing me and all sorts of stuff. But on the page, in the sense of like, can't wait for Brexit for you to go back to your island. And I was like, have you just wrote that on my page? I just didn't engage. I didn't engage. And basically, for the four and a half months, I was just advised by others to sit on my hands. And that's why my my sixth challenge, my seventh challenge never happened. Loads of doors got closed in regards to potentially uh, support by other companies and uh, getting stuff for hampers to then raise more money for donations and stuff like that and, and making songs Christmas and blah, blah, blah. All that got absolute shit canned because of how Mont Blanc went. It's the same. I mean, I've had two instances when I, again, when I ran the length of the country, my my mission was to raise awareness of veteran suicide. Basically, our brothers and sisters are killing themselves at an alarming rate. I asked um, 
I'm going to just say a hotel chain. Was it Travel Lodge or was it the other one? All right, let's let's just pretend I haven't said a name because I there's two, isn't there? There's Premier Inn and there's Travel Lodge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I can't remember which one of them it was. But my point is, I said, like, I explained my mission and I said, do you fancy supporting me by maybe knocking a tenner off my room? I didn't, for people listening, I didn't stay in hotels. I, I slept in a tent. But this particular day, I'd run um, nearly 40 miles nonstop with a, another fellow commando. And when we arrived, and I think it was Bridgewater, he took me for a pint and then um, and then uh, said, right, I'm getting you a hotel, which is really kind of him. So he took me in this hotel and I just thought, you know, let's just test the water here a bit and let's see how how veterans are really treated in this country. And I explained my mission and said, could you give us, you know, 10 percent off, 20 percent? This hotel change um refused <laughs> right it all went up for the man it, it was ridiculous what should have just been a very simple yes sir of course that the girl yeah. on the desk should have had that power to recognize the chance for publicity here the chance what it would look look for you know how it would make this hotel chain look if they if they didn't support now nah, mate they didn't give a you know what greed another greedy corporation um refused and then when i put it out on twitter you know that this hotel refuses to support suicidal veteran oh did they change their mind you know oh mr thrall how can we help you i said well it's too late to help me now this was a you know a month ago um and i'm and they only did it to get me to stop tweeting. I wasn't tweeting. I'd put one one tweet out, right? Um, because when they put me in touch with their customer service, who were going to then, you know, sort me out, didn't even reply to my emails. So this is cor- this is the, you know the corporations that we we let run roughshod over our our culture and society. Yeah, ridiculous. I I feel for you, mate. I feel for you. Yeah, uh, just to quickly summarise on that, like in relationship, what you're saying, it's crazy how different um, the people in America, uh, how patriotic they are for their services compared to how we are over here. This, the differences are huge. Like you're giving stuff, office stuff, people are, oh my God, you're in the military, let me give you a drink, let me give you a free accommodation. Not, I'm not expecting that. But it's just shocking when you then put a comparison. That's that's the thing. Um, yeah, but yeah, we, we, we could delve into this for hours. And it's, yeah, it's we, not something we, we we could. But thanks for um, you know, like I say, elucidating on it. So let's talk about your latest challenge. Let's go back to that one. Um, people can find the video of it, can't they, on your Lord Disney RM Facebook page? I dropped the little. I dropped the Lord just because I thought like a lot of people like ITV or BBC and stuff like just like no, it just sounds too ridiculous. So yeah, well, it's just yeah, RM. yeah, that's a that's a that's a probably a good move. So yeah, Disney RM, you can go on there. Like I say, I'm on Instagram and Twitter, but the the main hub is Facebook. That's where I started. That's where I kind of know that platform a lot better. 
And my challenge, uh, because of the, the situation we find ourselves in with this uh, virus, um, I was like, I'm on lockdown. I've took a step back from work and I was like, right, I want to do my bit. Um, and what I thought, because I've already done Everest with uh, regards to the 10-year anniversary with my on a revolving staircase, to be fair. So it was only going up, not coming down. Um, but I was like, how can I trump that? And I was like, right. And then uh, about five days prior to the challenge, uh, that day, I just came up with this brain, this light switch moment. And I was like, right, uh, what is the biggest mountain in the solar system? And uh, there's there's a lot of speculation between two. There's one called Olympus Mons and there's one called Rhea Silvia. Now, Olympus Mons is probably more known because it was one found first. It's part of uh, Mars. It looks more epic on proportions. Um, uh, it works out on a gradient of between 5 or 11. Like I say, you always find different answers. You can never just find a black and white answer. There's always different variants. Um, it's the size of France, as if you placed it on top of France, there would be no France anymore. Um, and there's only around about five to a thousand meters difference between that and Rio Silvia. Now, some say that that's biggest Olympus Mons, which has made films and TVs and stuff named Olympus Mons. However, two thirds of the findings found Rio Silvia, so I chose Rio Silvia. And again, even trying to find the accurate height of that uh, was putting me in the ballpark of somewhere like between 22,000 meters to 24. So I just was like, right, right, just go in the middle. Uh, 22 to 23, so I just went by 22 and a half. Uh, and Rhea Silvia is it's an asteroid that orbits the sun, and uh, it's one of the biggest asteroids we have in our solar system. And uh, one to two billion years ago, it had an impact, and it lost 1% of its mass. Uh, and within this 1%, there's a crater, and there's a peak inside the crater. And this peak is Rhea Silvia, named after a mythological woman that, uh, or goddess that created Rome. And it somehow, I can't work out how it can lose 1%, but then this peak equates 90% of the asteroid. But apparently it creates 90% of the asteroid and it comes in at 22,500 metres, which is nearly, uh, it's in between the two and a half to three uh, times the height of Everest, our highest mountain on Earth. Um, and it translates to 147,638 steps high. So I was like, that's it. That's what I'm doing. I'm going to climb the height of the highest mountain in our solar system, Rhea Silvia is. Uh, Olympus Mons, for anyone that is the doubters or haters, I will tackle that later. But for now, it's Rhea Silvia. Um, so I, for isolations, lockdown, uh, quarantine purposes, I made uh, a one meter high, um, five steps each side, like say pyramid, as we talked about at the very, very beginning of this video. A mountain, mini mountain, Disney mountain, uh, that equates to five and a half meters in length, including the, and then that includes the turnarounds, which is about half a meter turnarounds. And I would just see myself going up and down and up and down uh, this mountain um, for what would be a lap from here to the other end and then back again, which was ironically funny that one end would be where that pen I would dob, that would be my recording method, uh, and then I'd go to the other end and I would be greeted by a laurel. Uh, the plant in the front garden is a laurel, which, which is one of the parts made up of the Marines cat badge. doesn't look like the cat badge, unfortunately, though. 
But uh, and then they come back and I would dob, and that dob would be two uh, meters covered, one meter that way, one meter that way, two meters. I would cover the uh, log that on a A4 piece of paper, which has five one centimeter squares, and the full sheet would equal them one thousand meters. So that meant I had to have two twenty-two and a half pages full of red dots. And I thought stupidly that was going to take about 24 hours, uh, no, 48 hours. Um, and if I just gave it 15 minutes worth more of sitting down working out, I would have come to about three and a half days, uh, which in reality would have been five and a half days if I just knuckled down. And instead, it's with seven days to complete with mounting gear because I didn't have a spare a spacesuit. Did you time yourself, Matt? To, when you were doing your workings out, did you go up and down the pyramid a few times with a stopwatch to see, or did you not not do that? No, I just I just remember that Everest took me nine hours to do, so I see the nine hours up. So I was like, right, come down as eighteen, and there's times by three, and I think that's stupidly I came up with the equation, but instantly you look at a calculator and that's wrong instantly. So uh, I think that's how I came up with the answer, but. Yeah, it took me five days in creating as well, uh, and even that is a challenge. I want to talk about the physical um, adventuring, endurance, athleticism type of as aspects here or implications, um, because there's a it's a whole fascinating subject again. So let's let's start with some basics. How often did you sleep? Uh, I started off. Anywhere between one and a half hours to four hours uh, in a 24-hour period, if not less. And when I started the challenge, I had sub six hours sleep just because I must have been that excited to start the challenge. I just couldn't sleep the day before. Not bad. Um, how, what did you fuel yourself with and rehydrate with? The five main things that I would survive on. Uh, the two big ones was Tailwind, which uh, through my series of challenges and doing research on all these ultra pages and stuff like that, anything endurance-based, I would find two brands. Uh, one of them, I can't remember the name, but the other one was Tailwind. And 70% of the findings for these two were Tailwind. And it's just like a powder form that you mix with water, two or three scoops for a 600 milliliter Nike bottle, general standard size water bottle. And that would have high calories, sodium, just minimize cramping, all the good jazz, everything you need. And then other thing that I was uh, fueling myself on was was uh, one of the lads that came to do the Mont Blanc with me. He left always nutty. That must have cost him a fortune, even if he was bought from Aldi a little. Either way, it was still a fortune. We've had three massive bags that would contain things like beef jerky, chocolate, raisins, all the different nuts you could think of under the sun this big huge power bags and i would just blend them in with bananas and milk smoothies and they'd be the two main things and then obviously because i was getting not much sleep coffee and then bananas and then if i on number five try to get to make up just any sort of normal meals but it's obviously trying to battle consuming normal meals while doing something like that yeah, did did you get many normal meals, Danny? Because when I'm doing my endurance stuff, I'm I I I can just eat. No, you know, a lot of people complain about you know ultra running and stuff that they can't stomach anything. But um, I've never really been there. I just when the when my body wants to eat, then I just can wolf wolf stuff down. 
Yeah, so I, uh, while doing this challenge, I came up with like, this five pillars. And then obviously as time came, uh, more time to process and think about it, I came up with seven pillars. Uh, and one of the, uh, one of the two additions was nutrition and hydration. And and people that look into ultras or uh, Ironmans or endurance, they'll find things like the recommendations of flat coke or or gels or bananas or pizza slices or pork pies or sweets. And but what you find is like if you let's say look at hundred miles, like the first fifty miles, so like you'll be general population and it doesn't affect you by seems of it, but like everyone, no, there's no there's no uh, blueprint at all you just have to work out what works best for you but generally like the first 50 miles you can consume something and then your body or your mind just rejects that and your palate changes and then you can't stand what you was having for the first 50 and now you're changing to something else for the second half so it does change as time goes on like you what what you could have one minute you can't have now Mm. also i make sure when i book when i'm doing say a hundred miler um, I make sure when I book book the taxi that I'm allowed to eat eat in it because I don't want to be dropping crumbs and you know spilling my drink on the seats. Um, it's funny that I haven't met many other competitors that 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 take a taxi, but to me it just always seems a lot a lot less hard work, you know. <laughs> uh, um, but uh, uh, I, I did just briefly talk about five, uh, seven pillars, five, and, and then went to seven. And I think this is definitely something that's uh, worth mentioning for anyone. Go, go outline them then, because otherwise people will be going, "What's what are the pillars?" Yeah, so so everything starts at a hundred percent. So all these seven, uh, obviously started with five, but then it turns out the seven pillars a hundred percent. That's full maximum health, good to go. And as you deteriorate going less and less percent and if you ever get to zero on any of the pillars that's you out the game like out the challenge out whatever you're doing one uh, you're as strong as the weakest link so as soon as one of your pillars is down to zero that's an index so i found that those seven pillars and this won't be the case for everybody because obviously there's like one or two that definitely doesn't apply but uh one of them would be um one was uh a thing called uh, your, your bowels. So there's a thing called runner's trotters. Uh, so because you're juggling around so much, that it moves your bowels and your stomach, that you then end up needing a number two, unfortunately, a lot more. Uh, slash also, because you're having so much command on your fat, uh, your muscles, that your blood gets moved from your bowels and stomach to these muscles. So you have a thing called runner's trotters. So you go to number two much more. So that's bowels. Then you've got your stomach. Like your stomach literally doing somersaults as you're moving around it all the time. Uh, number three would be your body itself. Uh, so like uh, muscle soreness, DOMS, uh, pulling things like your calves, your groins, your ankles. Everyone's like, oh, your your legs must be killing by now. That's your body. Uh, then you've got sleep deprivation, like in regards to only getting an hour and a half to four hours sleep, sleep deprivation. Then all these affect your mental health, your wellness, like like your willingness, like having that spring in your step to have your happiness, your endorphins. The two additionals I then discovered that uh, one is definitely um, it doesn't reflect to everybody because I was doing lives and trying to engage and I felt that really helped with the challenge and the raising money. So I was talking, but obviously all that gobbing off constantly on just sends practically responding or doing shout outs or 
uh, or answering people's questions, my vocal cords. And then the third and final, which we just spoke about, was nutrition and hydration. Like that can just change. Whether it's your mental mind that just goes, I can't stand that anymore, I can't bear that, or I really love to have that, or it's your stomach that just rejects it. So, yeah, for me, they're the seven pillars. And you start off 100 on them all, ideally, hopefully. You don't start a challenge with it already on the back foot. And as you go on your challenge, up and down they go. If you get a bit of sleep, your sleep deprivation goes a bit up again. And your mental health will go up again and stuff like that. You see what I mean? You, your yeah, how, main thing how, is to never hit zero. How long can an individual keep going then in, in an endurance challenge if, if they keep topping up these pillars? Will the body go on indefinitely? Yeah, I think so. Because it's, as, long as, you, as long as you're never making sure any of them hit zero, there's no stop. It's your mindset that will uh, push stronger and beyond your body's capability to, to a degree. Uh, your mindset. There's so many people that talk about this. Um, but for me, I was very fortunate because of my uh, conditioning and my training and stuff like that in this field that I never really found I any of my pillars went below 50. And that's kind of a nice area you want to be in. So as long as you haven't set too much to buy on a challenge, as long as you have, like, let's say you've never done a 10K, so you then set out to do a 10K. As long as that's not more you can chew, then as long as you're always between 150, then happy days. But if you never run and then you go, right, I'm going to do an ultra, so I'm not even going to do a 10, I'm not going to do a half marathon, I'm not going to do a marathon, I'm just going to jump straight to an ultra, then there's a good possibility that you're going to go below 50. And you're on dodgy ground if you start going below 50s. Mm. on any of them seven pillars yeah yeah it's it's, um it's an interesting one because after 37 ultra marathons in 37 days um as you do well that my my problem was the side that my it bands you know the tendons that run down the outside of your knees yeah they were so so sore I mean, I had a, I had a, a, a shin splint, so I had a fractured right leg as well, and I ran, I ran 500 miles with, well, you know, it's a broken leg. Um, that wasn't as bad as the pain from my, in the outside of my knees. These little, you feel the outside of your knees, people listen, you feel those little fleshy bits, that's the tendon running down. Those bits were so so sore that I had to, in the end, I had to strap ice around them just to keep the inflammation down so I could keep running. And um, so out of your seven pillars, I guess... Your, I, your body would be on low, but because your mental fortitude is very strong, you've got resilience, that was keeping that mental uh, not dropping, even though it would be dropping, of course, because your body's breaking or it's, it's in pain. So that would obviously have an effect on your mental health. So that would deteriorate. Because you've probably got good resilience, it's helping it always stay up. So yeah. your help, it's your mindset that's helping your body keep going. Yeah, that and the rum. Mm. <laughs> so describe then the hardest part. I know you said it was relatively, you know, fifty. You were running at fifty percent. It wasn't. It wasn't too demanding. I certainly saw one part where you'd it it almost looked like you were kind of 
Um, I'm trying to think of the was, word. Was it's this like, in the daytime? Uh, I'll be honest, I don't have enough memory to remember. It, it looked like you were kind of having to sort of start dragging yourself up the steps and yeah. you were... The way you were coming down the steps, you were, it wasn't that nice, like, stride that yeah. you had in the beginning like this. It was more like a, uh, uh, uh. And, but, but only, I mean, I only saw you like that once. And I was just wondering, my God, what, what's, what's this guy going through now? Yeah, so um, the one that you're probably on about, if it's nighttime or early hours, then that is just me being like Smeagol. Like I've either just got up or I've had a break. The body started seizing up. It's got or I've relaxed a little bit, took my shoes off, sat down, and then I had to start moving again and get the cops moving. And I've been in a cripple mode. And you may have come across me at this period. And it's taken me anywhere between half an hour, 40 to 50 minutes to go from literally like the good ironic T-shirt where like you've got ape and then human and all that generation the evolution. Like I've gone from on my hands and my feet and then to eventually standing upright. It's taken me that period to go from Smeagol to, to me. And then 50 minutes later, yeah, I could be setting PBs. But bloody hell, it was taking 15 minutes to do one lap at the beginning. Um, or uh, you'll see me in that 11 degree heat and that wasn't even the hottest. That was just the point where I had to be sensible. It made me realise, wait a minute, I've got 14 coming up the next day and 19 degrees coming the next day. But on that 11 degree heat, it just beat the hell out of me. And 11 degrees is not really hot normally, but it just zapped me. It just zapped me. And now I was like crawling over the, 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 the one-meter mountain, uh, using my ice axe to, to support me and kind of imaging that whole Smeagol look again. Mm. It's a shame you couldn't have had like a little cable car set up for when you got tired, you just hop in a cable car and do a bit. That's know. cheating though. That's cheating. It's like, I, obviously, when I want to go to the toilet in the daytime, because we've got neighbours and stuff, we're not in the middle of nowhere, I would have to go to the toilet upstairs. That's 13 steps on a counter because it's not on that mountain. It's on the house mountain. So yeah. that's 13 steps done by, I worked out that was roughly about uh, 500 steps I must have done in the duration of seven days that were on a counter. So 100 metres, which makes a difference. Um, and, yeah, it's just, it's just uh, I, I'm not a guy to cheat. So they were not counted. No, either that or you're not good at building cable cars in your front <laughs> garden. So um, I'm going to finish off, Matt. You've been really kind to give us all your uh, so much, so much time. We've actually been chatting now for three and a quarter, three and a quarter hours all, all in, although. Who's got the time to watch this, eh? <laughs> well, you'll be surprised people watch it in. In bits, they'll listen to a bit yeah. in the car, then they'll put it on when they're doing the hoovering or they're... Yeah, know, over, over the next month. Yeah. <laughs> well, all, all, all Joe Rogan's podcasts, you know, around about three hours, and um, you'd be surprised, you know. You'd be surprised, you'd be surprised what sed, sedentary lives people lead. <laughs> so um, you've got obviously got the T-shirt on, you've got your Royal Marines sweatshirt there with Rock to Recovery. And the Royal Marines yeah, charity. People like raise money for the first five challenges in 2019. Yeah. See that the people <laughs> I, I bounce back to, but obviously NHS is because of COVID. They're the two charities that um, 
my buddy Brad and I are going to mountain bike across America. We're going to do the world's hardest mountain bike route across America. Um, wow. We're going to we'll be doing it for those two charities. So stay um, stay tuned. I'm going to try and get um, Jason Fox on the podcast because he's agreed to be our uh, patron. Nice. So to finish off with three questions, I'm going to ask you book, film, and person. You can oh, answer God. answer that how you want. Right. Okay. So. Give me some context. What, what, do I have to pick the favourite of these? Well, what, what? I used I used to say, can you to people, can you recommend or can you tell us your favourite? And then, and then I had a guest turn around to me once and go, no. And I suddenly felt like really fucking stupid. And I've just felt like saying, just say a fucking book, any book, just just you know. Don't be difficult on my podcast, please. <laughs> Nothing worse than a difficult guest. Oh, it's just like, just, just, you can see what I'm getting at. You, we don't have to debate this. So, so I'll say to you, Matt, just have you, has there been a book you've really enjoyed? You think other people would something maybe adventurous? Has there been a film that's that in, you know, in the same vein? And has there been a person that, um, you know, is, um, has uh, set an example to you or, or encourage you to do something or is a, is, has, has, you know, could be Ernest Shackleton has, has given you the dream of going to Antarctica or something. Uh, all right. Okay. So books and um, first major book I ever read in my life was the Donald McIntyre undercover things where he was talking about football hooligan, uh, the, the behind the scenes on care homes, uh, fraudsters and stuff like that. Now, it's the only book when I was, I know, in my teens that I read cover to cover uh, and I was took away with. But what I'm looking forward to at the moment, uh, which will be in about 38 days' time or something, is the new Ross Edgley Volume 2 book, uh, Art and Resilience, I think it's called, uh, about his big uh, British, the great big, uh, great UK swim. So that's one book I am looking forward to. Uh, film so for people a... for people who don't know who Ross Edgley is. He's the guy that he he hired a boat and got a crew and they and he 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 swam around the whole of Great, not not Ireland but the whole of the the main British coast. Um, and he he's written a couple of books now on sort of resilience and training and and mindset and this kind of thing. Um, Just a monster. He's an absolute monster. Yeah, he's built like a unit, and then does endurance things, and you're like, how do these two things go hand in hand? But anyway, well, uh, that's that's your book. What about um, what about a film? Uh, I'm a proper sucker for Marvel films, um, but uh, I would probably say that I do love good tearjerker, but I can't think of anything off the top of my head. I do like a good uh, film that's based on true events, no matter if it's five percent based on true events. Mate, all them films, bloody, they're tearjerkers the older you get. You get the older you get, you get daft. Yeah. <laughs> it's all the, all the knocks you've had in life make you realise, make you more em empathic to other people's struggles. Let's think of a, an emotional film, uh, you know, uh, other than the, the obvious example, E.T. <laughs> Drew Barrymore. I can't believe it's Drew Barrymore. That's what blows my mind. Is it not Drew Barrymore? Drew, Drew, what's her name? Yeah, Drew Barrymore. Oh. Drew Barrymore. 
Well, it's Drew Barrymore. Oh, I'm thinking, you know what? Uh, you know what You're thinking of Michael Barrymore. Barrymore. Are you thinking of Michael Barrymore? Yeah. But yeah, <laughs> Drew Barrymore, how, how she's a little child, and you can see Drew Barrymore's face in there. Obviously, it is her, but when she goes older, you grow older. I, I'm guessing, well, no, I'm not guessing. You wouldn't have been born when that film came out. Yeah, but I still watched it when I was a kid. Mm, yeah. No, I mean, I remember I went to the cinema to see it, and it was just like, oh, wow. The, needless to say, the BMX craze just went <clears throat> And, uh, yeah, really, life just became different after that film because you got a BMX, your life just became about BMXing, and I'm so, so glad it did. I've still got a BMX in the, in the garage. So one of the first films I remember at the cinema was watching Jurassic Park, the first one, or Spawn, one of the two. All Batman Returns. It's one of them three was my first cinema film. So I'm going to put it out to the media that the uh, rowing machine, the Mont Blanc rowing machine man, his favourite film is E.T. <laughs> that, that was yours. Um, and, and then regards to people, who inspires me people-wise? I'd probably say, like, knowing that I'm raising money for people that might be in a bit of a, a stuck with their fitness or mental space, uh, or people that are uh, not fully embodied, as in, like, I know I know quite a lot of lads that have, like, lost legs or arms and stuff, and that they're smashing out. Um, following a couple of people on Instagram, like, the guy only has, like, one arm, and, like, it just, it just annihilates it. And, uh, and I think people like that inspire me in the sense that they make the most out of, like, what would be seen as a back foot or a disability, but it's not a disability, some some say. Um, so, yeah, I think what inspires me is knowing that hopefully I'm inspiring some people or uh, people that I would typically think I'd be inspiring are inspiring me. So it's like a, a big circle. I don't have a key person. i just just seen people making the most or have the potential to make the most. Mm, good man, good man. There's a film actually. It's um, it's it's a, it's a, quite a strange film. It's called Freaks, and it's about a, a, a circus. I think it's a French circus. So I might might just be remembering it wrong. Oh, I know a bit then. It's a it's a yeah, it's a black and white film, and in it, it's played um, by people that have that are genuinely disabled, right? The, the film, I'm not calling it Freaks. That's the name of the film, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the name of the film folks, right? Um, but it's amazing. One of these circus performers, us, you know, I don't know, uh, don't know performers is probably the right, the right uh, adjective. Is that an adjective, performers? No, it's not, is it? Oh, well, I'm dyslexic, so you're definitely asking the wrong person if you're asking me. The performer is a noun. You wouldn't think I was a writer. Anyway, one of these uh, members of the circus, let's call them, has no arms and no legs. Uh, carried around in a in a sack, just has like this sack suit as his sort of clo clothing. And in the film, he's uh, rolls himself a cigarette just with his mouth. It's incredible. Right, Matt, stay on the line. I'm just going to do our, uh, an official goodbye, and which basically means I'm going to hit the record button off. So just 
if you can just ho hold on, on 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 the line so I can thank you afterwards. Um, thank you ever so much, mate, for coming on the show. You've been absolutely brilliant. Massive respect for all, all your endeavours and your charity work. I will put the links to your latest, well, to your social media and also your latest project below so people can donate. Uh, to our friends at home, thank you ever so much for watching the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Please don't forget to like and subscribe and I'll see you next time. Friends, thank you for listening to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Please like, subscribe and share. And don't forget to follow me on social media. Username, Chris Thrall. Instagram, Chris.Thrall. Thank you.